The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where, um, you know what, it's it's the holiday season, let's mm-hmm. not explode this week. That sounds fine. Let's, Although, just, let's just fade the music out awkwardly. But I still have good taste and bad taste, you'll find. Oh, yes, and, and samesies, <laughs> as we will see this week on Critically Acclaimed. Uh, this is our movie review show here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, and uh, it's the end of the year. We are catching up on some really big movies. A lot of movies are just trying to squeak in at the last minute and get their Academy Awards qualifying runs. Also got a couple of big ones. Uh, so here's we got, what we got. We, we have a new Api Chapong Weiris Ethical film. I know. That's the most important thing. I Many would agree. Many. <laughs> well, yes. That's, that's a little vague, but I'll take it. Uh, here, here's the deal. Uh, if you do not know who we're talking about, stick mm. around because we're about to review... One of their films, mm. and they are considered one of the best uh, international filmmakers around. Just the whole world, working, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we are reviewing uh, the following films: uh, The Matrix Resurrections, the brand new Matrix movie directed by Lana Wachowski, without Lily Wachowski. Yeah, L- Lily is persona non grata for this one. Yeah, uh, we are reviewing Adam McKay's new comedy. Don't look up. I put a little stank on the word comedy. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And a and, slew of others. And a lot of people. Jennifer Lawrence, Jonah Hill, Meryl Streep, etc., etc., etc. We're reviewing Joel Cohen, also a sibling working solo. Uh, Ethan kind of is persona non grata. Uh, Ethan and Lily are like having a drink somewhere. <laughs> oh my God, I would love to see that show. I, if, just, just, just they a, should make a podcast. Just, just Lily Wachowski and Ethan Cohen. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That'd be great. Oh my Just god! Taking taking shots of rye. That's and, the best and idea I've ever had. Shit. Oh my god! I would listen to that podcast every fucking day. Uh, okay, and uh, Joel Cohen's new film is the tragedy of Macbeth, hmm. uh, which is of course uh, I can't Wait. think of anything funny. It's based on a Shakespeare play. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of what what could be funny. Something to do with McDonald's? Hmm. No, 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 no. Something to do with that well, one. You gotta... like that one like James Legro adaptation, Scotland, PA. No, no, no. That's too obscure. And then the sentence just kept going, and I was like, I should just end this joke with a non joke and move on, so that we don't talk anymore. And then I explained it, and that made it worse. That was an incredible run on sentence just there. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, we're reviewing uh, the new musical. Starring Peter Dinklage, Cyrano. Uh, that's a new Joe Wright film. Yeah, it is also based on a classic tale. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that as well. And we're reviewing the new uh, Apichat Pong, We're Sethical. Did I say that right? You did it. Nice. <laughs> uh, the new film, Memoria, starring Tilda Swinton, which has a very unique release strategy, which we will talk about uh, mm-hmm. later in the episode. Uh, before we do that... Firstly, uh-huh. uh, it is after Whitney and I are both uh, Christmas Christmas friends. Well, we yes. enjoy Christmas very, very much. Well, we're, we we are both celebrants of, of yeah. the the Christmas. And I just want to check in with you, Christmas wise. A, yeah. how was your Christmas? It was quite good. Yeah. Um, 
today, the day we're recording this, the day after Christmas, yes. and uh, my son actually, he's six years old, actually said, "I wish every day could be Christmas." Ah, so we did something correctly. That's nice. Uh, San- Santa brought him uh, Lego Mario, and uh, puppets are the new hip thing Wait, kids it, are doing. Is Lego Mario a video game, or is it Mario in Lego form? It's Mario in Lego form, but okay. the Mario uh, has like a like little tiny screens for eyes and a mouth and a little display on his chest. He's only like three inches tall, but he has these tiny screens Weird, and like changes expression depending on like what he jumps on, what you build out of Lego. I think it's like color uh, sensitive. That's weird. So you can put it on like a red surface and Mario thinks he's in lava and he yells like he's on fire. That's I, wow. That's a neat toy. I had no idea that existed. Things are, things are getting pretty sophisticated. That's nice. That's cool. Uh, what, What did you, what did you get for the holidays? Oh well, you got me something very nice. Oh. You you got me a T-shirt uh, for Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which is one of the best films ever made. Yes, that's true. Uh, I think that might be one of like four of those shirts in existence. <laughs> so far, so far, we're gonna popularize them. And, and what one is in Arlene Sedaris like uh, yeah. warehouse somewhere? They tell people what Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Is. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. I said it's one of the best movies. It's a um, movie from. Uh, when was it? 89, 89 or 90? 90, 90. I was yeah. around there. Yeah. And uh, it's directed by Andy Sedaris, who made a long series of these. It's the second film in like a 12 film series mm. about uh, secret agents who are stopping bad guys on the island of Hawaii. And they're all played by uh, uh, Playboy Playmates and Penthouse Pets. Uh, so there's a lot of showering and a lot of uh, hot tubbing. Yeah, Hard Ticket to Hawaii features a scene where a bunch of spies come home and they're like, okay, we have to debrief and talk about... Uh, the the next mission and who we're gonna kill? Let's get in the hot. Tub. Let's get in the jacuzzi. <laughs> and the do. next shot is they're in the jacuzzi, topless. Yeah, of course. But they are talking like, about the plot, and, and they and they're and they're pouring out diamonds in their hands. Ooh, look at these diamonds they're smuggling. Yeah, they're they're giving exposition. Yeah, yeah. But the plot's to- not gonna stop just for this. Topless in a hot tub. Yeah, um, you can kill many birds with one stone. There in is. Hard to to yeah, there's a wonderful. There's a, a frisbee with razor blades on it. Somebody blows mm. up a, a blow up doll with a bazooka. Nice. There's a torture nunchuck bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. Who's in one scene and there's no explanation for her? There's a there's a giant radioactive snake. I, I was getting I was getting to the snake. Yeah, which the and movie forgets a, about a for a subplot, while. Subplot a subplot with a giant radioactive snake that I think is also like it bites you and you get cancer and it's like yeah. stalking through the sewers of Hawaii in the background while the main yeah. action. This is, is going unrelated on. to the main plot. Mm. This is a little tiny thing off to the side. This is like if you're watching like In the Heights, <laughs> oh. the bit where Lin Mama Miranda is like a shave ice salesman and he's got like a rivalry <laughs> with the ice cream salesman. If you cut that out of the movie, the movie would be fine. He wouldn't know it was missing, but it's still there the whole way. That's the radioactive snake in Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Mm. You're welcome. And uh, yeah, it's it's it is wonderful. Nice. Uh, it is it is unbelievably wonderful. Yeah. Uh, it I've, I called it the diehard of B movies. It's like it's yeah. kind of perfect that way. It's it even great. has a theme song of where they sing like the actions of the film. It's a hard ticket to Hawaii. It's uh, not paradise all the time. But uh, much more impressively, you tracked down something I'd been eyeballing when it first came out in I think 1994. Mm. Uh, the Franklin Mint used to be all over Star Trek, and they were they were the ones who did those Star Trek collectors plates. Yeah, if you remember those, I never understood. Like, like are a, we supposed to eat off those? Are we supposed to not eat off those? No, they're those? collectors plates. They so came you're just with little, to look little at them. stands, and you put them up in your like in yeah. your china cabinet, but you don't ever eat off. I of them. I never understood the collectors plate. And, uh, and, and yeah, the, and they like those. these really elaborate portraits of Kirk or Spock or the yeah. Enterprise. Uh, and they put out this incredibly expensive 3D chess set. It was glass, and the pieces were made of 
gold and silver. And uh, 3D chess, uh, people figured out how to play it. They yeah. came up with rules for 3D chess. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Star Trek. initially in the original series, you see Spock and Kirk and they're playing chess, but it's like 3D chess and there's like three different boards on top of each other and they're jumping mm. from board to board. I'm pretty sure they just didn't make up the rules. No, they the just kind of move pieces around. Kind of yeah. move pieces around. But, it, but much like all things Star Trek, like the Klingon Dictionary, retroactively, it, they it became a thing. It. Yeah. So they, they, the Franklin Mint released this like yeah. $250 plated gold set. And of course, it hasn't dropped in value. It's only gone up in value because yeah. it's just become rarer and rarer. But you've tracked down as an officially licensed Star Trek 3D chess set. It's not the Franklin Mint one. No, no, unfortunately not. It's actually it's it's affordable, which <laughs> which is which to is say great. it was quite expensive actually. Well, but it's well, the I'm, Franklin Mint one can be like seven hundred and fifty bucks right now. Yeah. No one I know has that kind of money. <laughs> Just to blow would, on a 3D chess. If I chess had it, I would spend it on you in a heartbeat. Well, but that's, that's like you to say. It's a significant if, amount of my yearly if, income. If, if one of us, yeah, if one of us wins the lotto, then man, maybe yeah. we can start buying each other these. Exp- yeah. uh, I'll buy you a pinball machine some Ooh. some completely unneeded chachki you for your home machine. absolutely you, you, you're getting me a pinball machine so it I, want to ba- I want a I want a basement that looks like a 1989 video arcade <laughs> is what I want <laughs> Or, or I guess early '90s, back when I could play like Ninja Turtles and pinball yeah. was really booming at that time. Yeah, that's when I wanted my basement when nice. I won the lottery. But you got me a 3D chess set, and yeah. now I have to teach myself how to play it, so I can yeah. teach one other person how to play it, we, and then I'll have somebody to play with. <laughs> we need to we need to play it together, like on a podcast. I think we need there to do go. that. It's going to be great. Uh, you got me. Speaking of Star Trek, you yeah. got me a Star Trek Niners uh, sweatshirt. Yes, the, the baseball team from that one that one episode of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, it's where they play baseball. It's it's like, take me out to the hollow. It's actually a really <laughs> stupid episode, but well, it's, it's also an episode that you can tell they really wanted to do. And in the last season, they were going to fit it in come hell or high water, even well, if it doesn't make any sense right now. Like the last two seasons of Deep Space Nine are really heavy, serious, yeah. like wartime drama. So whenever there's a funny war one, has it's broken out, out and. Yeah. For some reason, they they found a reason to like take take a break from war. Yeah, the and for a while, they're like doing it for like a week. Like it's and not so, a yeah, short some, period of some, time. Some visiting Vulcans have said, "Oh well, Vulcans are better at baseball than anybody." And and. Captain Cisco can't have that. So he assembles his crew, none of whom have played baseball before, nope. by the way. None of them. And, and he does the sort of underdog thing. Yes, we're going to treat you all to play baseball. With on the Bad News swing. Bears with Star Trek. Yeah, pretty it's much. A great episode. Um, so you got me a sweatshirt, which is very which cozy. The, the logo they wore on the show. fits like a dream. I'll be wearing that forever. You got me a great <laughs> book as well. Uh, my, my partner got me something I've wanted my whole life. Uh, Michelle got me a smoking jacket. Mm-hmm. Like you used to see like people wear like oh, yeah. in the 60s. Those velvet ones. It looks yeah. nice. Yeah, it's real, real nice. I love it to pieces. I'll be lounging about in that thing for forever. Um, so it was a very nice holiday for me as well. We had a great dinner. Um, yeah, just uh, uh, Luca played with all of his toys. He was super duper cute. Um, so uh, it was great. Nothing, uh, nothing about Christmas. And I'm very happy to say this. Nothing about Christmas blindsided me this year. Oh, wasn't that a clever transition? Thank you. We have a sponsor again. Uh, we are, and, and they're called Blindsided, you yeah, see. Yeah, there's, so. a, there's a podcast called Blindsided. And before we mm. get into our movie reviews, we, we got to do a bit. Uh, because Blindsided is a new podcast that is about mental health issues. And while yeah. I haven't listened to the show yet... Uh, I do support the idea, at least. So, Whitney, why don't you tell us a little yeah, bit about uh, it? It's a, it's a podcast. It's hosted by a former NHL goalie named Corey Hirsch and a psychiatrist named Dr. Diane McIntosh. Uh, uh, 
it says, plan your work week. This is some copy for you. Uh, plan your work week and uh, work your plan. Uh, for many athletes, sayings such as this could be considered scripture, permanent signposts, lining the long road to success in sports. For some, the very act of pursuing a career in sports can give a sense of control, a sense of safety, as long as you stick to the plan. That is, until life happens. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Breakdowns, insecurity, panic attacks, PTSD, addiction, sudden life changes. Ones that require an athlete to toss aside their well-laid plans and answer the question, what's your next play? Blindsided is a podcast about sports, mental health, and life. And uh, it's a little bit personal to me because I uh, my my sister is an athlete and she married an athlete and these are issues they deal with a lot too. Nice. All right. So anyway, so that's available where uh, wherever podcasts are podcasted. Uh, feel free to check them out if you're interested. And uh, we got to jump right in because we have a lot of movies to catch up on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we might as well start with um, a movie that, frankly, I wasn't sure would ever get made, or at least not in this form. Uh, we're trying to talk about The Matrix Resurrections. Okay. Uh, the Matrix Resurrections, of course, is the... well. <sighs> It's the fourth live action film, if, unless you count the Animatrix. Well, okay, these, it's a little uh, wonky here. We, we should, so, real, what's what's canonical? The Matrix is a film that came out in 1999. Yeah. It became it just rattled the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. introduced a lot of catchphrases into the lexicon, and mm-hmm. uh, revolutionized the way a lot of action was shot. Uh, yeah. No film really looks like it, even to this day. Yeah, the uh, original film, by the way, was not set up to be a huge hit no it was Keanu Reeves was, was not a, a gigantically bankable star it was just time. a genre film I think it was yeah. re- I don't remember when it was released but it wasn't like it was like April yeah it I remember was, seeing it, was, it, it wasn't yeah. a summer release and no. um, didn't have a cast of like people who were yeah. considered bankable stars the Wachowskis were this was only their second movie mm-hmm. uh, and the first one was this indie heist film which is by the way called Bound and it's one of the best movies ever made but Bound is really excellent yeah uh, and yeah The Matrix came out and uh, it was an action picture. It was, you know, a lot of a lot of long black trench coats, things that were hip at the time and uh, don't really hold up in terms of fashion, but Man, uh, became know. iconic unto themselves. And uh, yeah, it was about a, a computer programmer played by Keanu Reeves who learns that he's been living in a simulation. Uh, there are uh, clues around him and, you know, mysterious figures who enter his life and tell him reality is not what you think it is. Mm-hmm. He ends up uh, exiting the simulation and wakes up in the distant future. And it turns out human beings are being fed a fake reality directly into their brains by a malevolent machine order who are using brain chemistry to power themselves. Uh, it uh, sparked not really two sequels. It's kind of like one gigantic mega sequel that was released in two parts. Yeah. Before this was fashionable, the matrix uh, decided instead of like doing a sequel, seeing how well it does and then doing another sequel, they shot two sequels simultaneously and released them the same year. Mm -hmm. Uh, The matrix reloaded and the matrix revolutions. Uh, The first matrix was a huge success, a huge critical success. And the year that the phantom menace came out and everyone predicted would be like the big film to beat at the very least for the technical Oscars. Mm -hmm. It's trying to, Push visual effects so far forward. Jar Jar Binks was, though an unpopular oh, yeah. character, an incredible achievement visual effects-wise at the time. The Matrix ended up sweeping the technical Oscars. It was mm. a huge success. So a lot of people were really looking forward to seeing what the Wachowskis would do. Is this the new Star Wars? Is this the new mm. m- sci-fi fantasy mythology um, that's going to sweep the world by storm? And then uh, Reloaded and Revolutions came out, and no, no, not really. No, no. Uh, <laughs> well, th- those two films are, uh, they bear all of the hallmarks of uh, like a sophomore effort like from a rock band. They've been spending years and years thinking of their first record and thinking of like what sort of songs they want to put on it. They put it out as a big hit. 
and everybody immediately says, what do you got next? And they think, oh, crap. We got to bang we, something we out. We have to yeah. come up with new stuff really quickly. And the second mm. record is typically a, a bit of a letdown. That's a, a pattern in rock history. Yeah. I feel the same way about these Matrix sequels. It's like yeah. they had to sort of come up with the Wachowskis that is had to come up with a lot new a lot more new mythology to kind of expand on what we saw and it feels really hasty it's yeah. not incredibly interesting there's one interesting concept that they don't really follow through with uh, at the end of uh, the matrix reloaded oh yeah where um at the end of the matrix uh, it's revealed that the Keanu Reeves character from within the matrix uh, was able to manipulate reality within the matrix yeah. just mentally. So yeah. he was able he, to kind of like reprogram He can see the code, and kind like of as, literally the binary code around it. And he can yeah. manipulate it. And that gives him the ability to potentially save the world from the machines. Uh, perhaps. Uh, yeah. all, he, all he really does is give himself superpowers. Well, You'd think if you could rewrite the code, you could just rewrite all of reality. The, the but ending, they didn't the want to go quite really, that far. The movie ends really quick after that and mm. ends with a promise that we're going to see some really cool shit next mm. time. And he, and he can fly now. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and at the end of the second one, uh, he... Uh, Keanu Reeves ends up meeting with this uh, fellow who looks a lot like Sigmund Freud. Yeah, the architect. This, the architect. Uh, who's, you know, this machine intelligence. And the machine intelligence reveals to him that actually we let messiahs happen from time to time just so it keeps like this cycle of like uprising and, and mental break yeah. uh, keeps all of the brains of the human beings we have imprisoned kind of active. And that yeah. keeps them. Like, it's, it's a little bit like the movie Snowpiercer where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, okay. There will occasionally, we have a system where people are being subjugated and occasionally they're going to rise up rather so, than plan for that to never happen. We plan for that to happen. Every, and we have yeah. a specific way that this goes down. So it always goes down the exact same way. You being a messiah was our yeah. contingency. Yeah. Plan. You're like the That's, eighth messiah we've had. Yeah. And, uh, uh, unfortunately, they, they don't really follow through with that. Well, they, they do. Don't... I just rewatched it. Okay. I just rewatched it. It's been it a while first... since I've seen them, so there are a lot yeah. of bizarre details that uh, kind of I don't have any context for. In uh, my I'll, brain. Make it, I'll make it quick. Just to, suffice it to say, as someone who recently rewatched I've seen The Matrix a million times who hasn't. But uh, I've seen the sequels very, very recently after not seeing them for a long time. And I'll say this real, real fast. The biggest problems with the sequels, besides what you're talking about, which is they feel kind of hastily put together, uh, is they don't spend enough time in the Matrix, especially the third one, mm -hmm. because in the Matrix, the virtual reality world, that's where you and I live. Yeah. That's where the people listening to this podcast live. That's yeah. the metaphor. They, We're trapped yeah. in there. So when you spend time outside of the Matrix, there's no like connective tissue to our reality. And so you really have to develop that reality really interestingly and develop all the characters really, really well in order for us to really care about them. And they never do that. So everything feels really superficial outside of the Matrix, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the other problem is just... Um, uh, uh, there's all this world building and the, frankly mm. the character stories get really really lost yeah, there's really amazing action especially in Reloaded Reloaded okay. has some amazing action that holds well, the, up really the, really the, good the, the so it's still pretty watchable that one Wachowski's famously built uh, an entire freeway portion yeah so they could have cars driving back and forth and they could stage action like leaping from car to car on that whole sequence Mwah, chef's uh, kiss amazing mm. uh, The Matrix Revolutions Follows up on that idea you said, and at the very least, uh, Neo, Keanu Reeves' character, is trying to break out of that cycle. The mm -hmm. idea is that machines, and this comes back in The Matrix Resurrections, the machines see things as really binary. Yeah. Good, bad, working, not working, whatever. Uh, and 
Neo, the one in particular, is able to see outside of that simplistic equation. Mm. And so when it comes down to is you can either agree to follow along with the plan or all human beings are going to die. And Neo says, I pick option number three. Mm. And he picks option number three and it works out pretty good. But did it? Now it's been over, uh, not, not over, it's been nearly 20 years since mm-hmm. The Matrix Revolutions came out. We skipped over The Animatrix, which was a series of animated short films. Real mixed bag. Also hastily put together to yeah. bank on the, the popularity so, of The some Matrix. Some of them are really bad. They there was, do not hold up at all. A couple of them do. There was also uh, a video game called, mm-hmm. overseen by the Wachowskis, if I yeah, recall, no, it's, um, it's canon. called Enter the Matrix. And yeah. uh, evidently something happens to uh, the Lawrence Fishburne character, Morpheus. Morpheus, in the video game that mm-hmm. comes into bear on The Matrix Resurrections. Yeah, they consider that canon, so uh, you will not be seeing Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix Resurrections because the stuff that happened in that video game, I didn't play that video game. I don't, I'm taking I, all that on faith. Uh, all I know is that he he's out of the movie. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he, if he died or what happened to the character, but he's out of the movie. In any case, the story was told, and the Wachowskis weren't didn't seem terribly interested in revisiting it. And then along comes the Matrix Resurrections, which is directed only by Lana. Lily didn't want to come back; their choice. They're busy working didn't. on a TV series, uh, and, uh, well, and and she said that like they've done it; they didn't want to go back. Yeah. And um, in the interim, they also lost their parents. Uh, that oh, was yeah. actually a big blow for for I guess for Lily. Uh, but she she did down, cite but... that. Uh, Losing her parents was kind of uh, going back to, to like a project, but bef- mm. like while her parents were still alive, was like a little bit too personal for her. And the, and, and the Matrix Resurrections is yeah. partially about that. The Matrix Resurrections. Here's how we revisit this, and this yeah. is we can't. This isn't a spoiler because this is literally the setup of the movie, and we need to talk about it. The setup of the movie is this: Thomas Anderson, which was uh, Neo's name before he claimed his new identity. Uh, is alive and well. Uh, he is working at the video game company, and about 20 years ago, he created an enormously successful media franchise called The Matrix. In the movie, it's based, it's a video game, but, but presumably there was other media as well. Well, it's yeah. it, in the movie, it's a video game. That is, in Resurrections, it's a video game, but it's a video game that incorporates footage from the 1999 film. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, exactly. So, that was enormously successful, and now Neo is, or, or Thomas Anderson, uh is working on a new project called Binary. Yeah. Uh, and he's told by... that cute, yeah. He's told by his business partner, played by Jonathan Groff, uh, that uh, Warner Brothers now owns us, and uh, they don't want to do any new projects. They just want to go back to the Matrix because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a proven IP, and if we don't make it, the people who made the original, uh, they'll just get someone else and we'll lose no, all we've... control over it. So Thomas Anderson's like, well, shit, if I go back... And redo this thing. It's going to bring up like a lot of shitty memories. And I had to deal with a lot of personal shit involving with that. There's a lot of like personal trauma. I went through a lot of therapy over this. But okay, let's do it. And then pretty soon reality and the Matrix start to bleed together in this weird hybrid of the Matrix and Total Recall and Fellini's Eight and a Half and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. <laughs> it's, it's, um, the new nightmare thing I think is really cool that uh, we are now looking at, uh, we're now in the real world yeah. and we're looking at the matrix as sort of a creation yeah. by the artist. And it's about okay. the artist who made it new nightmare is about uh, the actors from the original nightmare on Elm street now playing themselves yeah. uh, being stalked by the monster from the movies. I almost wish this and movie uh, had just gone for it and said it's Keanu Reeves. 
Yeah, yeah, or or, or yeah. E- even even if not, even yeah, you know, if Tom, even if Thomas Anderson is like in the real world, yeah, and uh, over the course of the first act of the movie, uh, he's being stalked by figures from the Matrix, these mysterious yeah. hacker uh, characters who keep appearing in front of him, and uh, he is being uh, placated, and he's taking medication thanks to his shrink, who's played by Neil Patrick Harris, uh, and. The more these characters appear in his life, uh, I I assumed it was the more insane he was going. Mm-hmm. That these were all sort of like these powerful hallucinations. Like it's a total recall thing where yeah, you can't and, tell how much of this is reality, how much yeah, is not. And, is, is, and there are pills involved, so there might be yeah. some hallucinations. But every but, day he takes his blue pill mm-hmm. in order to stay safely within the confines of quote unquote reality. It's uh, cute. It's cute. And, and, and it's a little on the nose, but it's cute. There's, there's a line from uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Blades that's been going around all weekend, yeah. which is, I know authors who use subtext. They're all and they're cowards. all cowards. <laughs> that's basically this movie. Yeah. This movie's very upfront and, about and in, everything it's and about. And in fact, uh, there's a scene where uh, Keanu Reeves has to, as Tom, as Tom Anderson, is taken into a room full of all the Matrix characters that we've seen floating around the periphery. Yeah. And they're all, and not only are they floating around him in the exact same configuration as the first movie, but the first movie's playing on the wall behind them, yeah. and they're they're enacting the movie and it's they like, say it's like they, a shadow cast from rocky horror they say we did this on purpose because nostalgia has a way of calming people down <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> all of this commentary you'd think that this would be sort of a meta narrative a commentary on the matrix overall and indeed there's some dialogue during this first act where like christina ricci shows up as an exec like some sort of executive yeah. and they're all a talking whole bunch about of, like young marketing gurus are trying to figure out like what is the matrix what, is the what matrix? makes it work in and the first they're place they're kind of making fun of people who overthink the matrix they're making fun of the development for uh, the development wing of warner brothers as well, uh, well yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's like when uh, in, in Futurama when they were canceled by Fox yeah. when they came back they had these characters from the box network <laughs> And they and yeah. they were sh- depicted like punching themselves in the face because they're so stupid, and then right. they then they die and get turned into powder, and they well, pour their powder down their pants. Well, do you remember when uh, uh, when Family Guy got originally got like uh, canceled after like two seasons or something, and mm-hmm. it was off the air for a long time, and then DVD made it so popular that they brought it back. It, it lasted like about five years. It was a long that, time. It was yeah. it was it was quiet for for a long long time, but when they finally came back, the opening scene was the entire family was sitting on their couch. And then uh, Peter Griffin comes in and says, guys, I hate to tell you this, we've been canceled. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been canceled. The network says they're not going to make any more Family Guy. Well, what do we What do? we do? I don't know. They have to make room for all kinds of exciting new shows. Like, And then for a solid 90 seconds, he just lists off shows that only lasted one season <laughs> in the interim. Okay. And then... For Freaky Links, Greg yeah, the Bunny. like Firefly. <laughs> and they're just like, well, what... what? He's like, well, do we have any hope? Well, I mean, I guess if every single one of those shows gets canceled, maybe we have a shot. But <laughs> what are the odds of that happening? Low every single show got canceled. Uh, But yeah, so they're commenting on, uh, Lana Wachowski is commenting on sort of the place the Matrix has in the popular firmament and how uh, coming back to bank in on it now, like years after the fact, what we're doing, what we're watching, it's kind of a churlish enterprise. Yeah, it's a movie Uh, about why this movie shouldn't exist. uh, And then Keanu Reeves uh, takes the red pill, goes into the Matrix, and they just do it again. They, they and almost completely and it become, it, drop the meta-commentary. They drop the meta-commentary entirely and yeah. it becomes something incredibly boring. There's, there's, well, I will say this. I will say this right now. Uh, th- there's one moment in the second half of the movie where mm. they just kind of forget that this was ever like, you're supposed to question the reality of it. 
where one of the characters from the original series, I'm not, I won't say who because he was whatever, minor spoiler, but one of the characters in the original series shows up and he basically is just there to yell at people mm. and he just starts yelling over and over again all these profanities and then after a while his profanities devolve into him just yelling, sequel, reboot, yeah! <laughs> like just using all of these like internet buzzwords and it's just like, I get it. Um, I, I I like that character. Yeah. I, I I liked his point of view. Yeah, I didn't, he was presented as a bad guy. I but. feel like after a while, uh, uh, Lana Wachowski and their, then their co-writers mm. uh, got a little tired of the meta stuff and just figured, okay, fine, we'll go back to the Matrix for a little bit. And what they did was two things, mm. and I think these are things that are interesting, but we didn't need them. All right. Uh, one, and I think this is the best thing that they did. Was they wanted to give Neo and Trinity's romance, which was barely a plot point in the first movie. You mm. never really saw them having a meaningful connection. And then the plot moved so quickly in Reloaded and Revolutions that we still never really got to buy their romance. Like they, so instead they, they just s- fucked all the time. They, they said that they were in love, but th- yeah. they... And I've, said, they, I've said it this way before. Yeah. They, they have as much chemistry as two fax machines sitting next to yeah, each like other. Yeah, they, like they, they have sex just, a lot uh, and we're supposed to buy that they're really hot for each other, which... Okay, fine, but I'm not buying their big epic romance here, and this movie specifically takes the time to let them talk for a while, and I think that a big part of this Uh is an attempt to sort of fix that a little bit. Legitimize the romance. Make make the romance feel like romance, Um, and I I actually buy it. I think Uh, Carrie Ann Moss and Keanu Reeves are very good in those scenes. Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss have aged far better than the material is what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Um, they're, They're... they're very at ease with one another. Mm-hmm. They're older now. They have like a little bit more of a relaxed demeanor, mm-hmm. uh, spe- especially in the early scenes where they're sort of in the real world and they're just sort of talking and working each other at like what their lives are now. Yeah. I like those scenes. Yeah. Uh, and there's also this sort of like passing the torch quality because uh, the plot of the movie is uh, our, our team of hackers uh, in mm. the matrix or the future world yeah have to rescue a carry on moss yeah uh, and the idea is uh it's not neo who's the powerful one it's actually Carrie on moss and her like who's actually been doing all the heavy lifting this whole time like they're kind of more the one together than it is ta- neo and, and you know, also her ta- ta- like, taking it away from the male and giving it to the female is, is a good commentary especially well, from, also, a, from a trans filmmaker and again also uh, like we're looking at their relationship as well and how interconnected yeah. they are that also makes it nicer i agree with all uh, that. but it's unbelievably disheartening when they enter you know they exit the matrix and go into the future world where nothing has changed the, oh. the machine world like all they've really they said that 60 years have passed uh-huh. uh keanu reeves has been like artificially de-aged while he's been there's there's pod. a long reason for there's, that yeah it, there's it, some, some explaining yeah, but it's yeah. 60 years have passed we get to see jada pinkett who was in some of the mm-hmm. sequels uh now in old age makeup she's aged mm-hmm. a lot more and the only thing they say is, well, we're, we're in a new city. We've learned to grow fruit, but essentially everything's the same. See, I, this, here's what I actually disagree with you. I think you're, I think uh, you're, 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 you're I, I think you're selling that a little short because I actually think what, uh, what well, well t- tell me because okay. I, the film doesn't really say much of anything. No, I think it does actually. Yeah. I think what the film is, because the last film ended with Neo saying, okay, we're all going to get along now. And everyone's like, okay, fine. But what does that fucking mean? Mm-hmm. So with Matrix Resurrections, we see a future in which, Mankind and at least some of the machines have tried to create some sort of harmony. And what we see in a little bit, not a lot. And frankly, when we do it, it's this big exposition dump. Uh Much like the first movie is a huge exposition dump in the second act. But the exposition is a little bit more interesting. 
Um, but we get this huge expedition dump of basically what we imagine a utopia to actually be like in a, a future where, I mean, yeah, there's still the assholes over here doing asshole things, and we gotta worry mm-hmm. about that. Basically, the Matrix has become, like, the media trying to, like, force-feed, uh, you know, bullshit, like, uh, uh, discrimination and uh, 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 conformity down our throats. Mm. But meanwhile, over here, we have people who are actually working together and are actually trying to create a form of harmony. It's like the two versions of the internet. The version of the mm. internet we thought would bring us all together and the version that would tear us all apart. The, They're no, over there. I, I, I guess, I guess my, my issue is the, the visuals are identical to the previous movies. Yeah. And so this utopia you're describing mm. looks just like the, the muddy hellhole they were in before. I, I will say this, having watched them back to back, the Matrix visuals are the same, granted. The human world, they're not. They're actually very different. They have similarities, but they're they're very, very different. The color timing is all completely different. There's a lot oh, of stuff wow. in there that is very, very different. It, it doesn't seem yeah. like a blissful utility. Like they've, oh, done, blissful, they've done anything. No. And also the machines are still around. Yeah. And the machines well, are still We don't want them to die. They're 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 sentient beings. The one was way to create harmony. They're still Growing people in pods, though, is yeah, that's point. and that's a problem. Yeah, and yeah. then they're, they're and that's why so we still, they they're yeah. still the machines are still up to their shenanigans. There's just like a few rogue machines that mm. have sort of gained sentience and joined, sort of, yeah, are helping out people. They also, I think, do a rather poor job of explaining like why this new matrix needs to like exist in its current form. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail about how that all works out, but basically, we find out that like. A bunch of people, characters we previously knew from the Matrix are still in the Matrix, but now they like look like different people so for reasons have... which basically read like either that one thing about how Lawrence Fishburne couldn't come back because of the video game. I don't care. You could have totally brought him back. Or um, maybe we couldn't get that one actor. We had to find a way out of this one. I feel like that's one <laughs> it's, case it's, where there's, like there's, there's a one like major an, character. An, an where imaginarium like... of Dr. Parnassus yeah. thing going on here. Where which they're. they're... Thinking of clever ways to recast the same character. Yeah, and and it, frankly, it seems like we're all just trying a little too hard to make some things that don't work, work. Mm. Um, another thing I really like in this movie is there's way less uh, fetishization of guns. The well, original I, movie I was, was that, big uh, on guns. There's, guns is one of the biggest sequences yeah, the, in the whole movie. And here, Keanu Reeves, and he's the one. He doesn't need a gun. Yeah, he, 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 uh, he and Carrie Ann Moss uh, don't use guns in this movie. Yeah. Uh, there's still that signature scene of bullet casings raining down from uh, you know, a gun that's firing them. You know, yeah. rapid but fire it's being used building. against them. And, and, and again, I think that's something that's mm-hmm. maybe, you know, maybe an attempt to be a little bit more responsible on how they fetishize the, the yeah, violence in the yeah. film. Okay, that's an interesting thought. The, the original Matrix was like kind of cold and steely and really cool, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of a lot of us got really far on sort of the cool of it. Um, but at the end of the day, the main character is played by Keanu Reeves, who's uh, you mm-hmm. know a, a good screen presence in certain uh, certain mm-hmm. circumstances, but is also not the greatest actor. And uh, as such, we kind of like projected a lot of the characters onto uh, the the people we saw in the original Matrix. Yeah. And uh, I feel like the same is going on here. We're sort of given a cursory introduction to characters that look really cool, but they don't have a lot to say. Only a couple of the new characters get anything remotely resembling new screen time. Uh, Mm -hmm. I would say Jessica Henwick, 
uh, is a fun is, is, is a she, fun is she bugs yeah she's bugs bugs yeah. is cool bugs, bugs looks cool whoever designed bugs's outfits and sunglasses <laughs> perfect yeah, the, the, keep doing that it's the, the, style every character in every movie the, the, sti- style and costume can bring you a long way but uh yeah. it, it, it's not the same as a character it's like the, the she has char- much character she has more character than like say a Darth Maul but uh yeah, yeah. a lot of people like Darth Maul cuz he just looks cool yeah just, bugs bugs is a fun character and i would if they do if they decide to do any more of these i would happily see them flesh out that character more yeah but they make a striking impression jessica hanwick is very very fun on screen without going into too much detail i think yaya abdul mateen the second who's now the new morpheus mm. sort of uh he's having a lot of fun here i am maybe half confident of what that whole character is about <laughs> like it's pretty thin honestly mm. like how that whole thing works but he's bringing so much energy to it and he's really trying to make it Better than anything probably would have been on the page. Jonathan Groff is doing the best he can, but that's another one where he's kind of like wearing someone else's costume in a way. Mm. And it's sort of like, it's just kind of forced. The thing that actually bums me out about this movie more than anything else is that, because it's, it's just a weird film. Okay. It's mm. probably shouldn't need to have been made. They made it, it well, half it, meta, it, half, it half com- reboot. It comments on the fact that it doesn't yeah. need to be made. And, and then, then they kind of prove to you why. Uh, yeah, and then, they, then they show you the movie, and it's like, oh yeah, you're right. You didn't need to. We yeah. we didn't need this last I, ninety minutes. I, I didn't. I didn't not enjoy myself, but it's not particularly great. Yeah, well, I so, I didn't. I didn't enjoy myself. I, I had a reasonably good time. I, I feel but, like the they're not giving you know, uh, bringing new visuals to it. The, the, yeah. the Wachowskis previously have been incredibly daring in what they bring visually to their mm. movies, even if they're doing kind of a a typical story like in Jupiter Ascending. Which has you know is is a little bit more of a typical sci-fi yarn mm-hmm. than they they had done previously, like in the Matrix. But or, a lot of something ambitious like cloud ideas I, yeah. and imagery in it. Yeah, it's some fun. Uh, the ideas flying that sneakers a lot of, are badass. The flying sneakers are really cool. They, yeah. you know, all these weird alien species. You know. I, in, uh, translucent floors that the the bad yeah. guys walk around. Really on the awesome costumes. looking wedding yeah. sequence. Like just there's a really all, neat. There's stuff a lot in that of film, really yeah. cool stuff in it, and uh, even when they're dealing, even if the story is a little bit predictable, they're at least dealing with some bigger things. Uh, otherwise, they're doing weird crap like uh, Speed Racer, where oh, yeah. they're just trying to push the envelope visually, or uh, Cloud Atlas, where they're trying to push the envelope conceptually, mm-hmm. or at least editing wise. This is, in terms of ideas and visuals, the least interesting Wachowski project. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I still think that the worst Wachowski movie is still more interesting than a lot of other people's worst movies. I don't I, think it's I a su- complete watch, but I suppose so. But it, it, it feels <coughs> like uh, like Lana Lily didn't do it. She didn't want to do it. No, yeah, for whatever it was and, worth. Yeah. And Lana is like her heart doesn't seem to be in it even. No, no, no. I agree. I agree that this feels a little half-hearted. Mm. But I think the point is to show that it, it feels like kind of a slap in Warner Brothers' face, like, fuck you. Yeah. And I kind of appreciate that. I think this is a have your cake and eat it too kind of thing, where it's like, I'm going to explain to everybody up front why we didn't want to do this, why this was completely unnecessary, but if I'm going to do it, I'll do a couple of fun things. I had a few ideas in the interim. I'll throw them in there so you'll be happy, I guess. But then at the end, we're just going to kind of just futz around. And... I kind of admire the rebel energy of that. The thing that kind of bugs me about the movie more than anything else, though, is um, I, mean, I know some people are like really falling over themselves for this film, and I get it. I know some people who are not fans of this. I also get it. There's re- the movie is pretty upfront about the reasons why you wouldn't. The one thing that bugs me is that I actually think the action sequences are mostly subpar here. The action yeah, sequences yeah. in the original Matrix movies, all three of them, 
maybe less so the ones in like the quote unquote real world, mm. uh, which tend to be a lot more chaotic. The the action sequences that designed are a bit more about like millions of squid robots flying around. It's kind of harder to get your bearings. Mm. Uh, but especially within the Matrix, the action sequences in the Matrix movies were heavily lifted from Hong Kong action movies, which had been reinventing the right way to well, the right well, way, reinventing the way to do action well, sequences for the eighties and the nineties. The the sequences and... in the first one were done by the legendary Yen Ping. Yes, but also even the shootouts were obviously copying a lot of John Woo in there. Mm. There was definitely an effort to use action visually in a way that was exciting but also incredibly clear mm. you're never like unclear as to what's happening in any of those movies even when it's getting chaotic at least in the matrix and in fact uh, they invented uh, this thing that was hit for like maybe two years uh, yeah. called bullet time yeah. where they uh, they the filmmakers set up a series of st- it was essentially still cameras yeah that would and they would surround the actors with this long series of still cameras yeah and each one would take a single frame in succession really quickly. So what you could do is freeze the action and then rotate the action in midair mm-hmm. uh, very quickly. And that was yeah. some, this was pre-CGI. Yeah, it was sex- so exceptionally novel at the time. It, yeah, Eventually it, it CGI would really make that amazing. unnecessary. There were easier ways to do it. Well, now, they, now they just yeah. swirl, because there's yeah. no camera anymore. Yeah. They can just swirl th- images about yeah. all But at the want. time, CGI characters wouldn't have been realistic enough to pull that off, so they mm-hmm. did it in a more lo-fi Away, but ironically, a way that looks better. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so they were really trying to be innovative in that regard. Here, it just feels like a, there's a couple of cool shots here and there. Occasionally, there's a cool idea for an action sequence. There's a fun thing with doors that I don't want to ruin, but it's neat. Mm. Um, there's a cool, like, climactic bit where they introduce this, like, new feature that's kind of kind of neat, but I, I don't think it's told very well. Um, it's just the editing. It's it's fine. It's like it, you you get it, mm-hmm. but if you put things side by side, I think you'll realize that it doesn't feel as well planned and choreographed, mm-hmm. like an elegant uh, 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 part of the film. It feels like something that they just sort of shot. There's this one action sequence in an abandoned warehouse where there's like four different people fighting at all the same time. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of action you'd see on a show like Arrow. Mm-hmm. Which good action, especially for TV, but I, I expect a little better from the Matrix, and I just feel like that was kind of a bummer to me. Yeah, um, I don't dislike the Matrix Resurrections. Is it amazing? No, I appreciate the attitude with which it was made. I think there's some fun ideas in here, um, but uh, for me, it's a real mixed bag. I think I appreciate that. Rather than just do a revisit to the Matrix and come up with some ham-fisted excuse to go back and everything like that, mm. uh, Lana Wachowski and their co-writers tried to take the curse off of it a little bit mm. and actually make a movie about why they don't want to make this movie, but they're doing it anyway because the corporate overlords demanded it. Um, I think they could have gone much farther with that. Absolutely. Maybe maybe they tried and like they had to get pulled mm. back. I don't know what it worked was like yeah, behind well, the scenes. But I can imagine something that's a lot more playful than this really working throughout the entire film, more in like a Paul Verhoeven total recall kind of way, where like you're never a hundred percent sure yeah, yes. if this is, is a this real movie Matrix or not. World, yeah. I feel like they could have gone a lot farther with that because they introduced the idea and then they kind of abandon it. I, I, 
I feel like they could have gone further with it. I I think they would have made it stronger. I really, really wish they had, because there's there's a lot of tantalizing ideas in that first act that they don't follow through with. Um, There's one fun uh, visual at the end where the machine takes over the bodies of people, like, all throughout the city, which was kind of fun, but that's only, like, one brief portion of a a whole sequence. Yeah, yeah, all of the tantalizing ideas that they bring up, they just sort of leave there and go into a movie that is just completely boring Mm. and introduces no new ideas and very almost pointedly fights any new ideas that might come into it. See, uh, I, I, I appreciate that hmm. Keanu Reeves and Kiri-Anne Moss are, are very game. I like that they're much more... Uh, they're, they're, they're older now, so they're much more comfortable in these roles than they were previously. They yeah. feel a lot more human than they did in the previous movies. But their story isn't that fascinating. Uh, the villain isn't that fascinating. Yeah. And there's no uh, fun, exciting action or ideas to really carry any of this along. So ultimately, mm. just flops down and is, is content to not try. I, I disagree that there are no new ideas. I just think the new ideas that they have aren't so much groundbreaking from the, from the, from the ground up. Mm. Uh, as they are, if you were really invested in all of the films, all of the films so far, you'll kind of appreciate where we ended up next down the line. Uh, but, but I think that's 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 not a giant leap forward. That's a couple of steps forward. And I think, considering that we equate the Matrix with a real groundbreaking cinema, it doesn't really have that. That might be too high a bar to expect every single time. I suppose so. But um, I, I see your point. I liked it more than you, but I agree with a lot of your points. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I didn't enjoy myself <laughs> watching The Matrix. Uh, well, let's talk about another film from a prominent filmmaker, Oscar-winning filmmaker, mm-hmm. uh, Adam McKay. Okay. Uh, Adam McKay, who uh, got to start working in broad comedy. He did the Anchorman movies. Uh, and then gradually, over the course of his comedic career, started sneaking in more meaningful commentary into his work. Even the Anchorman films. The first Anchorman was about uh, women breaking into the uh, media workplace. The second mm-hmm. one was about how yeah, the basically... The 24-hour news cycle. Yeah. How the 24-hour news cycle was created and then almost immediately corrupted. Um, his movie, The Other Guys, which is essentially a buddy cop story, but about guys who shouldn't be action heroes being put in an action hero situation decent premise but it ends up being almost all about white collar crime mm. rather than about like stuff like drug deals and like <laughs> you know all that kind of all the kind of exciting stuff you'd see on Miami Vice watch it sorry I'm bumping the mic there. don't do that uh, so when he made a film called The Big Short uh, which was all about uh, people who were responsible for and trying to predict and prevent the enormous financial crisis of about 2009 mm. uh and he made a really complicated, interesting ensemble film that was very illuminating about the, basically the the house of cards our entire mm-hmm. economic system was based on. Um, and how, it, yeah, that it explains as clear as one can get uh, yeah. what subprime mortgages are. Yeah, and how those were the thing that kind of were a, a gigantic contributing factor to the mm-hmm. financial crisis. Uh, there's a, a really wonderful scene where, um, just to sort of blow off some steam, one of the characters, the one played by Steve Carell, goes to a strip club. Yeah. And is having a, and he just can't get out of his head. And so he is actually having a conversation with the dancer about sort of the housing crisis and what housing means. And the, the dancer reveals that she has like several homes. She's yeah. taken out all these home loans. Yeah, she's going to be completely and, yeah. screwed. And then, in this the, thing, then there's yeah. a hard cut of him charging out of the building on the phone, saying, "There's a bubble. It's going <laughs> to burst." Yeah. 
Um, it's a really deft piece of work. I think yeah. at the very least that screenplay definitely deserved an Academy Award. It's a really complicated, mm-hmm. excellent, it deals with a really complicated subject in a way that everyone can understand. And it's also a good film with really good characters and a storyline. Uh, he followed that up with Vice, mm-hmm. which was a biopic of Dick Cheney, uh, which was half biopic and half like SNL sketch about how much he sucks. Like it's, well, it's really not it, subtle about his come, attitude towards Dick Cheney at all. Well, uh, uh, yeah. Dick, Dick Cheney is, you know, one of one of the greater supervillains of American recent American politics. No, no, and, I don't disagree with and, that. And uh, but he was also a very like guarded figure. He didn't like give interviews about his personal life. And uh, yeah. So Adam McKay actually had a little disclaimer at the start of the movie saying, "Look, we tried our best. Yeah. We're we're just extrapolating who this guy was, and we're basing it only on sort of what we know from." Yeah, like hearsay and stories we've heard and sort of we're going to work into that uh, a lot of interesting political concepts mm-hmm. uh, using a lot of the same kind of jokey material like he did in the big short where um, uh, like in the big short he had like here's Margot, Margot Robbie playing herself but she's in a bathtub drinking champagne and, and she's going to explain subprime mortgages to you so you, yeah so it seems interesting to you and that's like yeah. a little bit of a gag yeah and in this one it's like okay well he Dick Cheney is a war criminal. Well, what are we going to do with war criminals? And so they picture, well, let's do these war crimes off of a menu in a restaurant. And Alfred Molina is the waiter. Yeah. Um, cute little gags like that. And they explain actually something uh, really cogent about the modern American uh, Republican Party mm. in that, A, they believed in sort of absolute power of the president. So it was all about sort of shuffling power toward yeah. George W. Bush. If you accept that the mm. president has ultimate authority, mm. then you can get away with almost anything. Exactly. Yeah. And and also, and it also pointed out that what was the purpose of having all of this power? And it pointed out, that's the purpose. Yeah. Having the power is the end to it. So I actually think mm. Vice is a pretty sophisticated movie. It mm. got kind of mi- like warm reviews at the time mm-hmm. because a lot of people felt it was just Adam McKay repeating the same I, gag. I think the problem with Vice, and I don't disagree with this critique, I just don't think it torpedoes the movie uh, the way mm-hmm. a lot of other people did, uh, is that nothing about it is subtle. Like nothing about that oh, movie is subtle. No. It's completely in your face. Mm-hmm. He's clearly trying to educate and i think that's something that the big short did with the economy but mm. not with the characters yeah the, and i think that's the characters that's, are all mouthpieces i think the that's short, the line uh, he crossed with vice that threw a lot of people the wrong way is that it just became so arch that it felt like you're either playing to your own crowd and you're not going to invite anyone else in to hear this message mm. uh, which brings us to don't look up which has got the same issue at least well, by design mm. Um, and Don't Look Up is a film that stars... Uh, well, it's it's yeah. another film that's satirizing a, a system, but yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah, this one isn't based on a true story like The Big Short or, mm. or Vice. It's a fictional tale. It stars Jennifer Lawrence as uh, an astronomy major and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as a science teacher at uh, Michigan State College. And um, they discover a comet. Ooh, that's mm. cool. We get to name it after Jennifer Lawrence. Isn't that nice? Then they discovered that the comet has a 100% chance of hitting the Earth and it's 10 kilometers long and that will destroy the planet or at the Mm. very least kill off all life on it. And so they have to tell people because 
You would have to. But uh, because of the way, because this is set in the real world, it's an exaggerated version of the real world. This yeah, is a satire. Yeah. But uh, the president isn't the real president, but they're well, kind of the president. The, the president, yeah. uh, the president is played by Meryl Streep, but she's clearly modeled after Trump. Yeah. In that she's like sort of a TV celebrity and doesn't really know how to deal with things, and her children are part of her cabinet. Uh, and first of all, they can't get to the president because there's just so much like red tape and they just have yeah. to wait around for the schedule to clear yeah. up. Even Time is like of the essence here and it takes them multiple yeah. days to see the president. And then when they finally do and they say there's a 100% certainty, hmm. they're like, okay, well, let's just say there's a 70% because that's easier to sell. And they're like, no, it's 100% but, uh, and it's coming in six months. Whoa, 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 whoa. We have to get through midterms first. Yeah, they, we'll they, deal with it after the midterm so elections. The, the, the politicians are, are more interested in image, the way they pre- pre- yeah. project on the media and mo- most importantly, how they project positivity through the media. Um, they try to get on a news program. The only thing they can get on is like this uh, upbeat morning news program where everybody's all smiles and it's Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett hosting the, the morning program. Yeah. And they are encouraged not to be too dour on this program. Yeah, they have to be kind of upbeat all the yeah, time. Yeah, let's try to put a positive spin on this. Yeah, and... Uh, and, you know, of course, when Jennifer Lawrence just sort of breaks down and says, no, we're all going to die, uh, th- everybody's just sort of left, oh, well, I guess uh, she needs to have work on a few personal issues. Like, that's all they're concerned with. Yeah, they're, with. Ba- they're playing it off with, here's the, this uh, person yeah. who had a breakdown on TV. Mm. Ha ha, let's make that into a meme. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and the film continues apace in, yeah. in that every time they try to tell someone, they're saying that they don't look the right way. And yeah. this is a film where Adam McKay is attacking uh, modern media culture. Mm-hmm. The way we are beholden to uh, our own personal brand, and mm-hmm. our brand has to be one of positivity. And uh, how we are grievously ill-prepared as a society mm-hmm. to deal with heady material when we are hell-bent on uh, image. We're, well, it's not even image. I feel as though it's a, the cultural critique here overall... Uh, has a lot to do with how easily distracted we are by the media. Our brains mm. were not really designed to handle a million different pieces of new information on a Twitter feed every minute. Mm. Uh, that's not like human society didn't work like that for many thousands of years. And it's very easy for even those of us who are aware of this to just get caught up in a moment and like not really focus on all of our priorities and get distracted by little bullshit. Mm. So... There are people in this movie who are just easily distracted by bullshit. And there are people in this movie who have a responsibility to actually take care of us in some way because they're in the government or mm. they're scientists. But they're, and, they're and, just as easily distracted. Well, what happens, I think, is, and I think what, what he's talking about here in a lot of ways is the idea that we think we're invincible. Mm. We think that there's no nothing that can really hurt us. And then well, when we when we become aware that mm. there's like a mortal threat... Then we like, oh, everyone bands together. We do the right thing for a minute. And then as soon as, as, as a minute as it, is over. As long as it takes to feel good about doing something. Yeah, okay, without we did something, actually doing anything. We, we, we felt good. We like banded together. Isn't that great? And then as soon as we're about to actually do something that's going to be long lasting, we say, wait, that would be inconvenient or cost money. So let's just not worry about it. And if there are long-term consequences, we'll deal with it because we'll be easily mm. placated by things like entertainment and money. And what he's saying here and it's basically a big elaborate and frankly not very good metaphor for climate change is that or climate change or, or COVID-19 or COVID but I think COVID yeah. feels I feel like this was clearly like developed from before that this is more mm. of a climate change issue but um, it, it was delayed during 
I realize that, but it, <laughs> I don't feel it's like a it's a significant part. I don't feel like it's, I, I, it applies, but I don't feel like it's a great, I feel like the metaphor is climate change because that's going to destroy the earth mm. if, if left unchecked. The, the presence of Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio is another clue for that. Yeah. He, he produced a film called the 11th hour, which yeah. is about climate change. It, this is one where like, if we continue ignoring the problem, the problem will not mm. just like, Oh, life will be more inconvenient, but it will be intensely catastrophic and we'll all regret it. And by the time we actually, it's so close we can't miss it. Mm. It will be far too late to have done anything about it. But because the the danger is in the future, like this danger that will kill us all mm. is in the future, so many people are willing to just not yeah, and, give a shit right and, now. And they go into yeah. uh, a, a level of satire, which you know, I, I haven't seen heard since, like, which I used to hear in like Stan Freeberg records back mm-hmm. in the 60s, where um, you can actually, when the, the comet gets closer and closer, they can actually see it up in the sky. Yeah. You can look up in the night sky and see it approaching. Yeah. And there's a new campaign to tell people, don't look up. And that's where the title of the film comes yeah. from. Don't look at your yeah. problem. A lot of people suddenly uh, believe in it because all you got to do is look up and you yeah. see it. Everyone else is like, well, don't look up. Well, then don't look up. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep, keep almost li- literally like, keep your head buried. And, yeah. Uh, I don't disagree I, with the overall critique yeah. here. I don't disagree with the overall message here. My problem with the movie mm. is it's a comedy and I never laughed. Well, the most I got, I, ha- I counted, uh, this happened four times. Yeah. I got, they got this out of me. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's all I got. There's a couple of times because it's just. I don't think it's necessarily trying to make you laugh. I think mm-hmm. it's just trying to make you like a. Con- confront you a little bit and yeah, uh, but it's, it's with it's a, a kind of s- sardonic misanthropy about the state of the human race right and, uh, but it's I, also very clear about that right away mm. and then there's no other note mm. so i get it immediately you this whole movie is basically i remember when this they this movie was first like announced or not announced mm. when it was first being marketed they released the scene i might have been slightly edited but they released the scene of leonardo DiCaprio and jennifer lawrence in the oval office mm. Telling Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill, who plays her son, that this is happening. The response is going to be, we'll have to sit tight and reassess. Yeah. And they're outraged and they don't know how to deal with that. That scene is the whole movie. Yeah. The whole movie is in that scene. And then this movie is two and a half. It's like over two hours long. There's a couple of plot points, which you kind of see coming or you kind of don't, but like they're at least a little different. But seriously, the point is right there. It's intensely clear. This could have been a short Instead, it's two hours of making the same point mm. over and over again. The vast ensemble cast, most of whom, it's not their fault. Their characters are adding very little to it because they're not adding different perspectives or anything. Mm. It's all the same perspective well, over and over and over again. What, what it is, is and it just it's gets a... tiring after a while. It's not helping. I, I don't feel like it's conveying the message very well because they're being condescending about it. Well, I think we're, we're sinking deeper and deeper into a pit of frustrating stupidity. And yeah. if you've been paying attention to the media over the last five years or so, yeah. you probably feel that way. Oh, sure. Uh, I, I want to compare Again, I, I agree with it. In I want to compare this film to two others. Uh, one is Idiocracy, the Mike Judge film, which it's is kind of, kind choice, of the yeah. obvious one where uh, we're sort of living in this world of idiots who don't really know how, mm-hmm. who are so distracted by media and advertising, which mm-hmm. is the plot of Idiocracy that they can't function as a society. And, you know, rather than being in the future, mm. it's now. Right now, we're dumb. We're idiots now. I appreciate that point of I view. I agree with it. Because it's kind of right. Yeah, uh, I, again, 100% agree. And the other one I want to compare it to was... Um, a film called The Oath from a couple of years back, oh, yeah. which was uh, took place in the near future. And this was a response uh, to Donald Trump. And it w- took place in the near future where uh, a very Trump-like president 
was making American citizens sign an oath uh, of loyalty to the president. Mm-hmm. And there was this, and it took place on like on, over Thanksgiving. And I think yeah, there was this family deciding whether or not they were going to sign this oath. Yeah, there's one guy and he's, uh, who's, who's he played by? Uh, Ike Barinholtz. Ike Barinholtz. Uh, he plays a guy who is like, he's very liberal and he wants nothing to do with this. He refuses to sign the oath. And then he finds out that other people, members of his family have, and everyone's judging each other. And then it all boils down to something that just keeps escalating and escalating. And maybe not signing the oath will make you a target for the police and everything's going to get really, really bad. Uh, but uh, a big plot of that movie is... Uh, the Ike Barinholtz character, he, Ike Barinholtz also wrote the movie. Um, mm. uh, he's constantly on Twitter. He's looking at the news. And every time something comes down, it's like, oh, God, something other, oh, outrageous happened. And his mm. wife is played by Tiffany Haddish. It's like, why do you keep checking? It's just like really horrible. And uh, I, I was guilty of that when Trump was first elected oh, president. Sure. It's like I was constantly looking at the phone. The whole like, four what, what years the I was like, like that because there was always something like, else. Something is breaking and something is breaking. And oh. I, it's like you have you, you almost felt like you had to pay attention. Otherwise, like things would fall apart while you weren't looking. And I think the oath asks the question, what are you waiting for? What what tweet did you want to see mm-hmm. that would sort of put an end to this? And the oath puts that forward. Here's the news story that you wanted to break. Yeah. It kind of gave you this fantasy outlet of like, okay, mm-hmm. you can finally stop paying attention because this was the one story you were waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that sort of frustration, the sort of like looking at the world falling apart and being completely powerless to stop it is Adam McKay's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so he's just putting himself in there raving and raving and raving and nobody's listening. It's a Cassandra right. story. Yeah, but it's if Cassandra was smug and thought she was funny. That's fine. I, I don't mind. It. I get <laughs> it, but like, and again, I'm not and against... There's, and, again. There's, and there's a wonderful epilogue, which was very, uh, like, uh, Hitchhiker's I, Guide. I, I, bit. The epilogue I liked more than almost anything else. I'll grant <laughs> it without giving anything away. I liked the epilogue. I liked how they set up the epilogue. Mm. That's one of, like, the four bits in the movie I liked. Yeah. I'll grant you that. Leaves you off on a very high note. I'll I do appreciate that i do appreciate that however mm. i don't feel as though again i just feel like he's just got one note here. i feel like he's mm. just got one thing he wants to say and he says it very very clearly and then we're just sitting with him repeating it over and over again in different mm. scenarios and i feel like that's not great comedy i feel like that's not great satire i feel like that's not great commentary because you're you're either with the message in which case mm. you agree right off the bat or you're not, in mm-hmm. which case getting to the end of the movie probably won't help you too much because it's pretty straightforward. Well, I, 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 I just, think the, I, the reason I'm, I, I actually do like this movie. I and, can tell. Uh, I, this, this is, and I under, you know, that's kind of an unpopular point of view. A lot of people are saying it's one of the worst of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I appreciate it's just it's depiction of uh, complete raw frustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that I think a lot of us can relate to. Yeah, where a lot of people who feel like outsiders in the world were the only ones paying attention. That's mm-hmm. for for people like that, and it's also criticizing uh, sort of the way modern life is, and a lot of people who live that way probably just aren't re- well, not aren't ready to hear it, but uh, mm-hmm. are just. A, a little bit miffed that they're taking aim at something so broad, which everybody's really uh, a part mm-hmm. of without any sense of like ver- variety or nuance. There's something that I think this movie falls victim to that I think it's, it's really infecting every part of it. And it's something that really turns me off from it, mm-hmm. which is that this seems to come from a perspective of a very bourgeois sense of nihilism okay. where you're able to look so, Oh, there they go. And by the end of this movie, and I feel like there's an element of this in the oath as well, um, it kind of doesn't matter what the protagonists do. 
uh, there's a certain fatalism to the whole yeah, enterprise, yeah. and, that, and that, that's something I appreciate. And that's but, something, yeah. and that's something that uh, people who don't have to worry about getting by, and people who probably won't be alive when climate change is going to destroy us all, probably have a different attitude of than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that that's it's good to leave out those perspectives. They talk about like, oh, why why aren't people more shocked? Why aren't people reacting more when you find out that a, 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 a an asteroid's going to destroy a comet's going to destroy us all? And I remember reading articles not that long ago that was about how you know young people are so aware of how screwed we are uh-huh. economically. Uh, 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 what's uh, uh, Politically, everything. No, just just the the, the environment. Environmentally, that's what I was looking for. Environmentally, the whole world around us, politically, a lot of people don't see themselves having a future. Mm. So one thing the movie could have perhaps brought up is the fact that you know a lot of young people are like, Yeah, we're gonna destroy it all in six months. Might as well. Mm. Like there's a certain nihilism here that and frankly, this attitude of you might as well just buckle down and accept your fate. I don't think it's particularly like the attitude that I think the film there's a bit near that. the end where it gets a little sentimental, which I didn't like, but there mm-hmm. is a, a character played by Timothy Chalamet mm-hmm. uh, who kind of has that attitude. It's just like, oh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they approach the Jennifer Lawrence character in one scene. It's like, hey, the world's coming to an end. Great. You want to go skating behind the Burger King? Right. Like, we're just going to get high. Like, they, they have nothing else to do. Um, right. But I feel like, there they're, was a, I feel like a they're, they're ignoring the fact that there are a lot of people in younger mm-hmm. generations who really do want to do a lot of stuff about this, mm-hmm. but they're constantly being shouted down ignored there were fucking protests all over the fucking country not Mm. that long ago people who actually do want things to change and that is not a reality that is even considered here because Mm. we have to make the same tired point over and over and over and over again and it gets a little exhausting well i the, the idea is we're doomed, and it's an incredibly nihilistic yeah. point of view. And, and I don't uh, and think it's told in a fun way to make it doomed. Well, it's not fun. It's not well, supposed to be fun. Um, well, then I, maybe I'm, don't make it a comedy, then. <laughs> I, maybe make would, it sad. Would you, would you consider, so, uh, not that this is uh, anywhere near as good as something like Dr. Strangelove, no, but uh, would you compare? Would you call Dr. Strangelove a comedy? Does it make you laugh? Yes, it makes me laugh a lot. It's oh, a very right. funny film. Uh, it doesn't make it, me laugh. I love ble- it. The bleakness but, of it uh, is, a, is a fascinating counterpoint to the silliness. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we laugh, but then we also go, oh shit, that is how we're going to die, isn't it? A mm-hmm. bunch of fucking... Bunch of fucking men who are worried yeah, about their is, penises instead of the yeah, world the, the, as it is are going to just is, blow us all up. This is a little bit of a similar concept, though. That yeah. pe- people are so uh, so obsessed with self image and staying positive and uh, being distracted by media and advertising mm. that uh, like that is selling themselves as advertising that uh, we're we're just ill ill prepared emotionally and practically to deal yeah. with a large problem. And uh, I I think it's okay to sort of wallow in that pain for for two hours. I'm not saying I'm not saying the premise again. I'm not saying the premise of the movie is bad. Mm. Premise of the movie makes sense. I'm not saying the overall ideology of the movie is bad. Although I do think it is not necessarily productive. I think it's rather nihilistic to a fault. All right. Uh, I I don't mind nihilism, uh, especially in a movie like this, which is. trying to say that the current state of things is there's no solution to it. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the point that it's trying to sort of, I I would take something like this over like Roland Emmerich's type of preaching. (laughs) 
I was thinking about the day after tomorrow a lot. Yeah, the day after tomorrow was way more fun than this. It's way more. It's it's unbelievable. It's way stupider than this. Yes, and 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 not that don't look up is like a a, like a Thackeray think piece of like social satire, Uh, but it's it's way smarter than uh, the day after tomorrow, which is as Mm. dumb as a bag of hammers. There's a there's a scene in that movie where mm-hmm. Jake Gyllenhaal runs away runs down a hallway away from cold. He outruns he cold. Outruns cold. Another movie this reminded me of was the mm. movie Deep Impact, a movie in which Elijah Wood with Lily Sobieski on a dirt bike outrun a tidal wave that they explicitly say is going at the speed of sound. <laughs> that's a fast that's a, money that's bike. A, yeah, that is a very fast motorbike. I bet they sold a lot of bikes. Um, <laughs> It'd be fun if like their their cheeks were pressed back because they're going so fast. There's an unfortunate tendency. Any, I, I feel like um, you know, there's that expression: you can't make an anti-war movie because as soon as you put it on camera, on some level, it's like you're, you're making it grand. Really exciting. You're yeah. making it grand. You're making it larger than life. Uh, you're you're making every sacrifice seem noble or or powerful at least. Um, you're you're making people sympathize with the people of, in the war, and therefore you might yeah. be more okay with aspects of war. And that's that's a contradiction that some movies have dealt with reasonably well, and most seem to struggle with. I feel like we were like that with disaster movies too, mm. where like you know, oh, it would be a horrible disaster, but it would also be awesome. Yeah, yeah. you know, and there's something about that which is not very productive. I was thinking about the day after tomorrow, and I was thinking about like when you see like. You know the world literally on fire right now, and you say to yourself, well, "Maybe Roland, exagger- Roland Emmerich wasn't exaggerating that much when you think <laughs> about it." And but at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, "But at no point after watching that movie was I like, well, we have to change everything now because the movie was just so fucking stupid, yeah. and it was so concerned with entertaining us." I appreciate that Adam McKay is trying to make us eat our broccoli. Yeah. The problem is, if you eat nothing but broccoli, you're still going to have vitamin deficiencies. <laughs> so you need other things, too. I, I, and I think that's the problem I, with this I, movie. It's just the same... It's just hidden mm. C-sharp over and over again. Mm. That's not a melody. Yeah, well, it's it, it's supposed to grate after a while, and I yeah. think it's supposed to, to frustrate after a while. And I got frustrated yeah. with how, how the, the main characters were so stymied and how, uh, at, at some point, they kind of either gave up hope or bought into the machine. And that's sort of like the nature of things. Um, I'll make another comparison. Um, I saw a film called uh, Looking for a Friend uh, at the End of the World. Oh, I never saw that. Or was it for the end of the Searching world? Searching for a Friend. Searching for a Friend at the End of the World. Um, yeah. And it had another one with Steve Carell and uh, Kira Knightley. And this was about how a, a comet was heading towards Earth and there was no escaping it. Yeah. And how how is society going to react to that? And mm. you know, a lot of people just sort of fell into hedonism. A lot of people uh, fell into complete hopelessness. Right. And uh, Steve Carell says, well, I just would like to have a friend to be with when it happens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and he finds Kira Knightley and it's, you know, it, it's not a film about escaping the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It's about a film about what you're going to do in the last remaining bits of time. I'm fine and, with that. Well, but here, this, this is sort of the dark. One of my favorite of songs ever written is it, five years by David Bowie. It's literally about, <laughs> I, it's, I, I appreciate that uh, premise. This is another film that has a, a ticking clock and it's about what we're going to do with our, our last remaining moments and how we are, so ill prepared to deal with something serious that we're just going to kind of keep on in this kind but of it's, obfuscation. But it's not about how we're going to deal with our last remaining moments. No, it's, it's, about, it's about how it's we're about, going to, to completely ignore it. Yeah. It's about how we're going to take something that could have been a solvable problem and make it into our last remaining moments. Yeah. yeah. And I get that, but I just feel like the movie isn't delivering it very well. And we're going to, we're going to agree to disagree on this one. I think we're just, we're making right. the same argument over and I, over I again. So. I, we, uh, we're both agreeing what the movie is doing. You think it did it really well. I think it didn't. I, I don't think it did it really well, but okay. I, I do, uh, I do appreciate, uh, that we have, quite frankly, quite a sardonic uh, 
bitter film about right. the end of the world that uh, is very much about the frustrations we have about the problems that we are able to solve and how there are people in charge that we're all frustrated with who have the ability to do something and who aren't. Mm -hmm. And anytime you've looked at the government who is doing mm -hmm. some, not doing something, mm -hmm. uh, anytime you've looked at a, you know, some news program that's not addressing something mm -hmm. that all of that frustration is being expressed in a movie like this. And I think that's actually very up to the moment. Yeah. I think it's uh, relevant. Um, I, I don't think it's grandly significant. I don't think it's right. the, the satire. It, right. On but the it's, scope. It thinks it is. It's a, it's a great big uh, tragedy mm. about how the people who are in charge are completely selfish and they're going to get everyone killed. Let's talk mm. about the new Cohen film. <laughs> Speaking of corrupt rulers, uh, <laughs> uh, the tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, this is based on uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Only Joel Cohen must have think that must think that Edgar Allan Poe wrote Macbeth <laughs> because this is a haunted this is like a, a weird haunted film. Uh, yeah, The Tragedy of Macbeth if if you've never read it or if you've never seen it produced, hmm. uh, it's it's the history is actually not great, but it's basically a biographical story of a oh, Scottish not based on real like it's there, was a real, there was a real guy vaguely and, there's and a real guy and, and Shakespeare didn't get their life story oh. right they're not as villainous as the as the play made them out to be in real life but um in any case the tragedy of Macbeth is uh there's a big war in Scotland and Macbeth is uh you know one of the one of the titans of Scotland you know he rules over big chunks of land and uh, he's just been very very successful in the it's war the, the Thane of Cawdor the Thane of Cawdor thank you um and he and his friend Banquo? Is Banquo with him? Macduff. Macduff is with him at the beginning. Okay. The names get confused. Sorry. <laughs> Macbeth and Macduff, the two Macs. Uh, they run across, on their way home, a bunch of witches. Oh, well, not a bunch. Three in particular. Or, ah, three is or, a bunch. Or is it one? <laughs> yeah, Joel Cohen decides to play with this and have a novel played by the same person, and maybe they are just one person. Really creepy witch stuff in this movie. Uh, but basically, yeah, they run into supernatural witches. This is not like a straight oh, up... Oh, no, wait, Macduff? You're right, it was Banquo. It was Banquo. I am, yeah, At the beginning of the play, it was Banquo. Yeah, okay, okay, I'm not crazy. Sorry, okay, no. thank you. Oh, God, I'm vindicated, finally. Um, Macbeth and Banquo are, are coming home, and they run into a bunch of witches. Actual, supernatural, larger-than-life witches. Joel Cohen took the fact that there was actually the supernatural in this movie and really ran with it, and I mm. think it's a good choice. Um, and the witches tell Macbeth, Hey, Macbeth, you're going to be king. And hey, Banquo, you're not going to be king, but your son will be king, and your future son after that, and all of your line, it'll be kings, and it'll be great. And Macbeth is like, cool. And there's a great comic strip called Hark of Vagrant uh, by Kate Beaton. And there was, fan of this. they did it. They did a, they did a, they did a lot. It's mostly about stuff from history or like old books or whatever like that. And like fun takes off of, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, the, fun takes on history, fun takes on classic lit. And they did one about Macbeth and they did this bit where the witches say, Hey, you're going to be King and your kids are going to be Kings. And uh, we just see how they probably should have reacted because Macbeth just goes, "Oh, I have to kill everybody now," and Banquo oh, should have been mm. saying, "Like, oh, maybe our kids will get married," <laughs> which really would have made a lot of sense. But instead, Macbeth is going to go on a horrible killing spree. He's going to kill a king. He's going to kill friends and the mm. children of his friends, and he's going to take over the crown of Scotland. Very short-lived. It's going to go real fucking bad. Denzel Washington plays Macbeth. Frances McDormand plays Lady Macbeth. She is epically amazing in this movie. Well, they they both are. Yeah. And uh, here, here's what I appreciate. Um, 
about this production of Macbeth, which mm. I I love. It's um, really good. I like it's really it it's, too, it's yeah. shot in Academy ratio with rounded corners mm-hmm. on the screen, so it looks nice and old fashioned. It's shot in black and white, but. Joel Cohen leaned into uh, the lighter colors, the light grays and the whites. Mm-hmm. So rather than characters vanishing into darkness, they're sort of emerging from mist all the time. Yeah. There's this kind of ethereal uh, wall of whiteness this surrounding take, all the this action. This doesn't take place in like a natural scene. No, this is no, actually no. very and artificial. All, all of the interiors yeah. are, you know, incredibly Clearly sound yeah, stages. Sound, stark sound stages. It looks mm. incredibly artificial. Yeah. Uh, Macbeth is a character has no character and that's kind of the point. He's mm-hmm. actually incredibly weak-willed. Yeah, he's he's and, always uh, been easily led. Yeah, yeah. And and he actually doesn't really have any goals for himself and the the tragedy of Macbeth is what happens when somebody who has no ambition tries it out. Yeah. And uh everything goes horribly wrong. And and that's kind of the same <laughs> as Lady Macbeth too. Yeah. Like she has this great speech at the beginning, uh, you know, where she just sort of says, "No, I'm going to start thinking violently." And you know, mm. the, the unsex me this night uh speech. Mm. And first of all, Frances McDormand plays it perfectly. She's so uh, she may be the best Lady <laughs> Macbeth I've ever seen. She's really. I've yeah, seen, I've seen several like, good Macbeths. It, I don't think I've ever seen a better Lady like, Macbeth. Like, like it, it's such a good character as well. Yeah. And uh, you know, she is the one who's sort of like a little bit more resolute. But there's no indication in the play that uh, Lady Macbeth maybe always lusted for power. Like she always yeah. wanted more for herself and for her husband. Mm-hmm. She, it's like she used, like she want, like started to think this is going to be inevitable. We're going to rise to power and we need to start thinking more in a more cutthroat man, uh, manner. Yeah. And when they get this sort of, uh, Oracle, yeah, she, she takes that as an opportunity. Yeah. Let's, let's go kill the King. Yeah. Who's played, played by, by Brendan, Brendan Gleeson. Gleeson in this Good casting. Uh, and, and they stab him and everything gets all bloody. And, and yes, Macbeth, uh, rises to the throne. What does he do there? Nothing. <laughs> Macbeth doesn't have a plan for again. This no. is going back to Cheney. Pl- he just wants power for the sake of it. Yeah, but at the he same time, do he doesn't it. really he has... know what to do. Yeah, like, for him, he's not enjoying himself. He hates it. And when he tastes power, he realizes this is power. This isn't me. What else? Wait, yeah. I'm as high as I can and it, get. And it's and you have to constantly kill people in order to keep it. So, it's no fun. And he comes yeah. to the conclusion: life is fucking meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And he gives one of the greatest speeches in all of Shakespeare. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Like just things go on and on and yeah. on. And there's no change on the, you know, lighting our way to dusty death yeah. out brief candle. It's just forget it. Life mm. is meaningless. Uh, and it's such a, and I think this is the first time I've seen the speech really have a good impact mm. as it was delivered because it's kind of incidental the way Denzel Washington does it. Yeah. He's just sort of like walking down a staircase. Yeah. He's not like standing, looking out on a vista. He's yeah. just sort of like pondering to himself. Joel Cohen. There's just, nothing going on Joel here. Cohen, I think, is, mm. he's, he's doing a really beautiful job directing this because it's this is temptation and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. When you're adapting Shakespeare to cinema, to make it as cinematic as humanly possible, not just like make it look good because this movie's shot beautifully. Yeah. Uh, but to make it big. Make it epic. That's something that Kenneth Branagh did, especially with Hamlet. He wanted to make the biggest Hamlet imaginable, and bless him, he succeeded. That's an amazing motion picture because of its giganticness. Mm. There's also this approach, and I think this is a very Orson Welles approach. I thought about Orson Welles' adaptation a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he did Macbeth, which is very respectable. It's not his best work, but it's very respectable. And it's got some similarities in terms of like the starkness of the production design. And it's basically we're creating these 
empty worlds for these gigantic characters to inhabit. Mm. Uh, this movie is very starkly designed. I was reminded of like some BBC productions I've yeah. seen where they try to set the action in as, as little frills as possible so that the yeah. speech and the characters can take over. But anytime something truly, genuinely cinematic happens, it's usually because of the magic. Anytime... Like, anytime birds show up, it's gonna fuck you up. Anytime the witches show up, <laughs> there's, there's it's gonna a, fuck you up. There's a denouement with birds, yes. which is sublime. It's amazing. <laughs> it's such a great, such a great last bit. Mm. Um, all of that shit's amazing. I really, I also want to give a big credit. I love some of the incidental casting, because mm. there's a lot of small characters in Shakespeare, and sometimes there's this tendency to either not highlight them or give them to actors and maybe roles that are sort of outsized. I'm thinking going back to Hamlet, Robin Williams in Hamlet is given like this really minor it's character. Like, and he's it, super distracting. Characters named Osric. Yeah. Remember Osric from Hamlet? Yeah, yeah, that, he, that character. He's cut out of almost every production in here yeah. because I guess he got cut out of every production. They gave him the, one of the biggest movie stars on the planet. He has almost nothing to do in the movie. Um, but we've got some really, really good like short performances here. One and there's two in particular that stood out to me. One was uh, something of maybe not a regular, but someone who's worked with the Coens before. Stephen Root. Oh, he, has he a plays great the comedy role. He plays a great comedy role as a doorman. I almost didn't recognize him for a bit. He's in fact, great in it. They even cut down the doorman's role a little bit. He has a bigger speech in, in the original play. But the person who just, I was like, is that who I think it is? Mm. And I am impressed at how good a performance they're giving. Mm. Brian Thompson as one of the killers. <laughs> Brian Thompson, who is just this big, he's like an assassin in a couple. Yeah, of scenes. He, he was he was the uh, the serial killer in the movie Cobra. All right, he was the alien bounty hunter in the X Files. He you, you, is you'd recognize him. Yeah. He played a lot of heavy. He's played a lot of bad 90s, guys yeah. in Star Trek. He's played like a lot of bad guys in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He's just this guy who's like really big and menacing, and he's got a really deep voice, and he typically just plays Schwarzeneggerian bad guys. And here he's got. A small but respectable role as one of the murderers. Mm. Like, the, and the, like, there's murderers that like Macbeth enlists specifically to carry a mission. He's got some couple of good scenes. Kudos mm. for acknowledging that Brian Thompson is actually apparently a very good actor <laughs> and has very rarely had a chance to show those chops. What an interesting choice. I love it. Because it's kind of the role he played in a movie anyway. We're just going to get a couple of assassins and they're going to have a couple of cool lines. But here he's in Macbeth. And he's really good. Just kudos um, for that. I love it. I, I really liked um, Catherine Hunter, who plays the witches. She plays all yeah, three of the witches. Yeah, they're good. Uh, she's, she, uh, you, you look up her IMDb and there's a picture of her dressed as Richard III so yeah. she, uh, at the Globe. So she, she has had a, a mm. quite a long, interesting career. Of course she was in a Harry Potter movie. Um, <laughs> A, a scene that's tip, and this is a pretty uh, brief, like mm. shave down of of Macbeth. It, it is it's, Shakespeare's shortest play, uh-huh. and this is only like 106 minutes. Like they're not really sort of letting it stretch. It's like sworn it was longer than that. No, it's under two hours. Uh, and uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's you're right. Ni- nice, nice and trim. Yeah, and it's good. There are some bits that they cut out. Uh, the one bit that's cut out of every production of Macbeth, which I wish they would put back in, is the scene with Hecate, the queen mm. of the witches. Oh, yeah. There's the bit where the the, the double, double toil and trouble scene, mm. where uh, they're just uh, they're conspiring with sort of like the witch lords. It's like Valpurgis mm. knocked of witches. And Hecate uh, appears to them and actually has some dialogue. And that's never, because it, it's, it's kind mm. of a distraction. 
Yeah. But wouldn't it be cool to have like a, the witch lord? I know. I, in, the, in, in at least one of these productions. A small role, which I feel like often gets overlooked in the in the play or in productions of it. Uh, but they understood how important it was. And I was particularly impressed by what amazing work Moses Ingram did as Lady Macduff. Yeah. Because they only uh, get like one scene, but it's a really good scene. And their last of, lines are really epic. It gives and a lot of humanity as a yeah, really violent moment. Stuff. I did like uh, Harry Melling, another actor from uh, yeah. got their start in Harry Potter. Uh, he, he he was one of the boys in Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays a character named Malcolm, and I think he yeah. actually you know is is very a very confident performer. I, I like watching Shakespeare productions when the actors feel it feels like they're relieved. I, I've made this comment about <laughs> about uh, Brana's Hamlet as well. Yeah, it's like we, we can happy to be we can today. finally act large and deal with these big complicated emotions because this is kind of like grand poetry. Yeah, and they're just sort of relieved to be there. Uh, Denzel Washington is such a skilled actor. He seems like he's almost afraid to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. Francis McDormand just completely knocks it out of the we're, park. We're so used to seeing Denzel Washington just dominate mm-hmm. because he can so easily that seeing him play a character who's just so weak-willed, uh-huh. but who still kills people. Like he's there's a couple of badass fights in this movie where he's really amazing <laughs> at it. But like he, yeah, it's it's almost a weird performance from him, but it's mm-hmm. really great. Yeah, you would you expect kind of like a, the Coens to cast like Michael Stuhlbarg, somebody who's a little bit <laughs> you know, used to playing like sort of more pathetic characters. I, I would pay to see that; that would still be pretty good. But getting Denzel I'm, to I'm do sure. it and then do it this way, yeah, and and the, yeah, they got, yeah, they got play. somebody like yeah. uh, like Denzel Washington, who this is, is my favorite Denzel performance in a while. I, when he plays something like this, uh, another one of my favorite performances of his was in Roman J. Israel Esquire. Yeah, that's, uh, that's because, another good one, yeah. That's underrated. He, it, it's not a, not a great film, but it's one of his better performances, in, which is saying a lot because he's a great actor. Yeah. Uh, but it's because he played sort of a... Uh, um, sort of a, sh- a shy, quiet character in that one. He had, like, yeah. principles, and he spoke yeah. up for himself, but he also was incredibly awkward and didn't know how to sort of relate to human beings on any other, other any other level. Yeah. So he kind of, like, kept to himself a lot. And the movie's also kind of a tragedy as well. Yeah, so, and it's and about he makes, he makes a, kind of uh, deliberately makes a bad decision and has sort of, like, the consequences that has on his life. Yeah. Um, in, again, interesting character, yeah. interesting arc. Not a perfect movie. No, I think I think mm. it's better that he will give it credit for, though. Yeah, yeah. that's... For, uh, that's yeah. Uh, oh, uh, was, Dan um, Gilroy did Dan Gilroy that's right yeah uh, yeah so it's it's kind of against type for him to play a character like Macbeth yeah you would expect him to play Henry V mm-hmm. you know somebody who's a or little Richard bit Richard III maybe or, yeah, or a like villain really like Richard III giant, yeah. uh, the, the only other Shakespeare film I've seen him in is uh, kind of brought as much to do about nothing which he's great in but it's another one where that's he's, a comedy yeah, he's, he's just kind of a charming charming he's, guy he's also an army general he's in charge of all of these yeah. soldiers so he's playing kind of a leader type and, and it's weird because he's like even though he was a huge actor at the time he's like the fourth lead in that movie uh, yeah he, he plays uh don johnson who is yeah. not, not the lead character it, it goes, it, it's like it goes like branna emma thompson mm. i guess keanu no no i guess uh, it's robert sean leonard is like well, the third the, the main the, if you want to look at it sort of like historically uh, genre structure the main characters are actually robert sean leonard and kate beckinsale uh, because they're the they're narrative like, revolves around them, but they're not the but stars. no, but but the the funny supporting characters Beatrice and Benedict, which is Kenneth Branagh yeah. and Emma Thompson, uh, they're the ones we're here to see. Yeah. They're the funny ones. Anyway, we digress. This is an excellent version of Macbeth. Yeah, there aren't a lot of really excellent versions of Macbeth out there. 
Yours and Will's one is interesting. I do recommend it. Yeah, it's, uh, the, it, it, there's some interesting one takes. There's a lot of yeah. shadow in that one, but I, I find it to be a little dull. I, it's not my. It's not his best um, work of Shakespeare or um, just in cinema. Um, the a version that is difficult to recommend for obvious reasons, but is still well produced, mm. is the Polanski version from '71. Yeah, it's a lot, yeah. a lot of natural sets and a lot yeah. of dirt. And really good performances production. in that film. Yeah. Um, I do not care for the Justin Kurtzel version from 2015. The, the Justin Kurtzel version is abysmal. Yeah, it's beautifully I, it, photographed. I can agree. I think well, it's nicely I guess, shot. As, as, as a photography demo yeah. reel, it works just fine. I kind of like the way that they played the uh, the whole. Um, uh, the, what's the name of the wood? Burnham Wood. The yeah, way that the, the way that Burnham, Burnham wood, wood comes to Dunsinane. Yeah. yeah, the way that they visualize that is a little different than most other films. It's a clever way to do it. I'll give them that much. Every performance in that movie reads like people who don't understand the text. No. Marion Cotillard mm-hmm. gets away with it better than anyone else in that movie because she's she barely brilliant. gets away with it. But like seriously, like yeah, I, Michael I, Fassbender plays I'm, Macbeth. In that I'm not convinced he knows what. I'm not convinced he knows uh, the meaning of the words he's saying. He's mm-hmm. just like he he understands the emotion. I'm sad now, mm. but that's it. it. It's such a thudding version of that. And I think it's easy to get distracted by the cinematography, which is nice. But man, that is a movie that doesn't seem to understand itself very well. This movie understands Macbeth really, really well. Yeah, yeah. This movie it, has a distinct vision it, of how to bring it to camera. It, it, it's it fo- really focuses funny. in on the on the characters and the tone and, and sort yeah. of the the incidental way the characters discover that life is meaningless, which is the, the tragedy of the play. Yeah. And I dug it. I dug it a lot. Anyway, it's really fucking good. And then another it, film that we're talking about. It's out in theaters now. It'll be if you have uh, Apple TV, it'll be on Apple TV uh, in mid January. Uh, and then uh, we have another adaptation of a classic story, not Shakespeare, but a classic story nonetheless, Cyrano, starring Peter Dinklage as Cyrano de Bergerac, a character who traditionally... It's from uh, from a play from the late 19th century. Yeah, and uh, it's, ba- it's based on a true story, although it's obviously incredibly dramatized. Uh, but the idea is Cyrano de Bergerac was a soldier and also an incredibly intelligent, well-read... Yeah funny poet romantic really amazing guy and the thing that was holding him back wasn't so much that he had a gigantic nose like a nose like like you couldn't miss it allegedly which is like a really well, it's, big it's, facial feature it, it's like artificially it's like like three inches long it's like yeah, it's artificially like, long it's distinctly large uh, but it was also their pride over it and their vanity mm. over it and mm. how they refused to be defined by it, but also the fact that they, by doing so, they defined themselves by it. Uh, it's a story of how he fell in love with a young woman, uh, but he was so convinced that the young woman could never love him because of what he looked like that when he found out she was had the crush on someone else, he mm. decided to help that person woo her because they were not particularly bright or at the very least not a good writer, and he decided to write the love letters yeah. for them. And then it spiraled out of control into more and more tragedy. It's been told many, many times. Uh, Jose Ferrer won an Academy Award for uh, mm. a version of Cyrano in the 50s. Uh, Gerard Depardieu did one in the 90s. Very respectable Steve version. Martin did one in the 90s. Roxanne oh, I guess it was a, the late 80s. Uh, for, it, was, it was the 80s, yeah. yeah Roxanne. Roxanne is a, there's, there's some fundamental problems with just the story in general when it comes to things like, you know, uh, consent. 
Like there's some issues that arise when you seduce someone for someone else, and then they get to that's, seal the deal. That's something that's really fucked that, that, up. That's and, an old, old uh, theatrical tradition that yeah. feels weird in a modern yeah, context. When you update it in Roxanne, that's like the part of the movie that makes me go, oh, no, there's don't do um, that. But like most recently, most, mostly uh, that movie's really funny. Though. Mo- most recently, just last year on Netflix, there was a really fantastic Cyrano story called The Half of It. Oh yeah, uh, yeah which yeah. was about yeah. um, it took place in a, like a small town. I think it was like. Iowa, yeah. and uh, it was about a, a young lesbian mm-hmm. who had a crush on like the star cheerleader, and so did the star football player. Yeah, and uh, the star football player came to the lesbian and said, "Hey, you're you're good at writing." Mm. He doesn't know that it? she has a crush on her. He no, just knows it's she's like good at writing. you know, you're good at writing. Can you help me write love poetry? And she starts writing very earnest, very direct love poetry, yeah. which is the story of Cyrano. Exactly. It's it's like sort of an indie film queer twist on the story. Uh, yeah. I really like the it, half of it's it. It's very well made. But again, I think one of the issues with Cyrano is that the fundamental storyline is kind of fucked up. And if you're doing an adaptation that doesn't acknowledge that, mm. you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. Fortunately. I think the Joe Wright version of Cyrano understands that this is a tragedy of people who are not doing something super romantic, of people making bad choices. Yeah. They're, they're yeah, romantic yeah, people. A lot of them have their hearts in the right place, but they're all making really bad I, choices. I was going to say that. I think the, the the smartest move this film made was making it a tragedy. Yeah. Uh, not, not, not playing not up. Focusing the, yeah. the rom- on the romance. Yeah. Um, the Cyrano character is played by Peter Dinklage. Mm-hmm. He doesn't uh, have the is... nose. The idea is Peter Dinklage is a little person, mm-hmm. and that's that's what he's talking about, mm-hmm. and that's what he's self conscious about yeah and it's a big uh, change and, but and, it makes and, and there's even like dialogue to that effect uh, yeah. this is actually adapted from a stage production which my wife got to see Ooh. she got to see peter dinklage live on stage that's amazing uh, peter it's... dinklage is an amazing actor yes he is uh, unbelievable like he he barfs charm this man <laughs> <laughs> he's it got the like... most silken like voice since like george sanders yeah like he's yeah, just yeah. like oh god <laughs> what a, what an amazing mm. person just, just leaving acting out of it. Just amazing performer. Just a presence. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. And then it turns out he's also a really good actor who can really inhabit yeah. a role. So, uh, and this is also a musical, and it's also directed by Joe Wright. So this is going to be. It's going to be sumptuous coming out the ass. Um, <laughs> Lots of good production. A lot design. of good production design. Yeah. A lot of interesting swirling camera yeah. movements. A lot of uh, costuming and yeah. makeup. A couple and, of cool sword fights. Yeah, and yeah. and Joe Wright does not play it close to his chest. He's interested in broad melodrama, and so when he plays it big, and it's also a musical, and people are weeping and wailing and rending their garments and talking about their love, mm. it works. It works okay. It's not alienating. In a way that such a production you uh, might be, you might think would do, uh, and the romantic s- plot becomes a subplot after a while. All of the setup we know about Cyrano that we see retold in Cyrano's stories kind of forgets the part where people start dying. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's there's this everyone knows and loves this whole big chunk of Cyrano, and then the second half is kind of a big downer actually, mm-hmm. and. Frankly, I think every version of the story, this one included, loses some steam around that point. Yeah, there's there's a bit where like about halfway through the movie where mm-hmm. uh, like everything shifts. Uh, the the main let me look up the actor's name. The oh. the, uh, the dunderheaded soldier guy. Oh, it's the dude from Waves. Yeah, um, uh, what's his name? Yeah, we'll find it. 
Uh, but the Christian, uh, the young, the young Ke- man, Kelvin Harrison Jr. Kelvin yeah, Harrison Jr. He's very good in this movie. Uh, Kelvin uh, Harrison Jr. is yeah. yeah, he plays Christian and he's called off to war. Um, yeah. As but, is Cyrano. As, yeah, so Cyr- the half the cast is the, the cast is completely divided. Yeah, and where the, half the which, people they, they're allowed to see each other because of machinations of the plot. Uh, Roxanne is played by uh, Haley Bennett, who mm-hmm. is uh, just sparkling. She she has as much charm as Peter Dinklage. So when, when mm. they're scenes together and they're kind of smoldering at each other, it's like, oh no, what happened to my shirt? Mm. It's uh... and they acknowledge, and I th- I do appreciate. It. I think the the song actually helps this. Mm. There's a bit in the movie where, or it's every version of the story where, um, after Cyrano has sent, um, what's after after Cyrano is it's a Roxanne is what, what's her name in the Roxanne it's in the original too okay yeah. I, for a the, second the, I was like wait did that was that the character's the name version? no the the character's name Roxanne in the original just making sure okay. Uh, late, I had a brain fart. Uh, after Cyrano has sent her a bunch of letters, allegedly from Christian, she meets Christian in person, and Christian is not articulate in person, and she's offended. Here she has a big song about it, <laughs> about how if you're gonna love me, you have to say the most beautiful shit in the world, and frankly, it's not a good look. It's a really high standard to demand from somebody. <laughs> well, but again, and, this, 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 this is got a very unreasonable standard, I read. but because Joe Wright is playing it as mm-hmm. a, a romantic musical melodrama. Oh, I know, I know, I know. That I'm, kind of standard plays a little what bit. What I'm better. saying is that it, that, that's something that actually works better in this version okay, because okay. it's in the musical number. Okay, okay. Um, there's also, and I feel like the movie doesn't really engage with this. I feel like a lot of historical romances are kind of uneager to engage with this. Um, there's this whole thing about like how, Oh, uh, will she marry the evil guy who is, of course, played by Ben Mendelsohn? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad he's getting work, but I got—I got, I got to imagine he's getting a little bored with villains by now. Um, I, there's this thing where it's like, oh, I refuse to marry him, even though I am poor. I must marry for love, yeah. and it's like, yeah, you know, that's a pretty recent idea of marrying for yeah, love. Well, and like the idea that a... she would do that is kind of romantic, but we never really see. A lot of characters in historical films that acknowledge what was probably the factual truth of it, which is you don't marry for love, you marry for practicality, and then you fuck people on the side yeah. <laughs> because everyone knew that would happen and everyone was kind of fine with it. You find love after you're married with someone else. That was how it worked. I'm not saying it's the best way to do it. I'm saying that was the historical reality for a lot of people, and I see very few films ever acknowledge that. And I realize that the story of Cyrano has long since been written, but the more you talk about it, the more you talk about it, especially in a musical number where there's a bunch of songs about it, the more distracted I am where it's like, you know, the whole attitude is kind of off here. Well, I'm going to compare this to uh, a, a, a... Another musical uh, based on a classic work of literature from earlier this year, which I hated, mm. called Cinderella. Oh, I think I say Dear uh, Evan Hansen. I was about to say that about classic, Whitney. Another, <laughs> another musical I hated was Dear Evan Hansen. That's really bad movie. But, uh, yeah, that Cinderella movie was that awful. That Cinderella movie was yeah. really awful. And I think um, that Cinderella film was really lazy in its use of music. Exceptionally it, it, so, yeah. it tried to uh, distract you with sort of high-profile casting and assume that if they included songs and musical numbers that you would just instantly accept the unreality of the story. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I understand this is a musical universe, but you still have to sell me on the big emotions. Yeah. However unrealistic It still needs be. to work as a it, story. It still needs to work as a story, and I still need yeah. to feel. In fact, I want the emotions to be so strong that words are no longer adequate. And yeah, they we have, have to, break to the song. That's kind of how musicals that's, work, basically. That, that's how yeah. it's supposed to work, and... Uh, Cinderella kind of backward engineered that. It's yeah, like, well, these emotions, these things don't really make sense. And 
and regardless of that, they're still going to update and modernize it in completely meaningless ways. Yeah. That is a stupid movie. That's it's not a good film. film. It's not a good film. Uh, this one understands a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Joe Wright understands a little bit better the theatricality of it and how these impossible standards and these unrealistic things about the characters and the stories. Mm-hmm. Have to take place in this heightened universe of sumptuousness and music mm-hmm. for us to buy it. I think that's true for Cyrano. I think Cyrano works best when it's heightened. Um, mm. But my biggest problem with this movie, and I like this movie. I don't. I, it's not far from my favorite of the year, but it's mm. a really good film, and I like it for the most part. But the thing that's holding it back from being great for me, frankly, as much as I think a few things about it work, is the music. Mm. Partly because there just aren't a lot of bangers in here. I know we're not necessarily all looking for breakaway pop hits, mm. but a lot of the songs are just kind of there. They there's, don't necessarily yeah, make a big impact. There's, there's a couple that are I good. Can, one that kind of, I can kind of remember. Uh, yeah, mm. the, the, I agree. I, I think yeah. the music is uh, could be a little bit more hummable. Yeah, it's uh, just the music itself is just sort of like there, and there's a couple of songs that don't really work. Like there's this weird bit. Where like they're at the war and everyone's writing letters to their loved ones and they tell the person accepting the letters, yes, and tell them I said. I'm like, that's not how mail works. You're telling them, mm. and then this person is going to deliver that mail to someone else, whoever someone else, and then they'll get your letter. This kid who's accepting your letters isn't going to tell your story. The whole premise of this song is distracting and weird. Mm-hmm. The one that really doesn't work though, and frankly, I think it hurts the film. There's a song early on after uh, Cyrano meets Christian. Mm. And Cyrano says, listen, uh, Roxanne is in love with you. I don't know you. I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but I told her I would, I would help you out. And he's like, okay, but here's the thing. He says, he says you, Roxanne wants you to write to her. And Christian says, here's the problem. Uh, I cannot express my feelings articulately. Mm. Here is a long articulate song about my feelings in which I explain that I cannot express myself articulately. No, that is the antithesis <laughs> of the point here. You could have written a fun song in which he fails to express himself articulately. He's not as articulate as Cyrano, but that song gets the job done. It shouldn't. That's breaking the character. <laughs> oh, I, I think that's, that's fine. I, I think don't. That's, I you, think using, I, using a song in a way that a character uh, wouldn't sing it is... Uh-huh. Par for the course no, of mirrors. I think. I think, I think totally when the fine. whole point of the song is, I don't know how to express my emotions, and the song expresses the emotions beautifully. Mm. You're just not selling the concept very well. Mm. If the whole thing is, I oh yeah, I can express myself through song. Great, sing to her. You're underneath her balcony. It's a thing. You can do it. <laughs> Nothing of that. It, it kind of messes with the premise, and I just feel like mm. that song in particular hurts the story a little oh, bit. I, I don't mind that. It bugs me a lot. I, I, I think. I, um, but anyway, I, I think I feel like this would be if you keep the heightened quality of it, the over yeah. the larger than life quality of it. You could take out the songs from here, and I think it'd be an even stronger series. I th- I I think the songs do help uh, help it just sort of tonally. Mm. I, I do wish the songs had been more memorable. I do think it also drags in the back end a lot. Yeah, but uh, that's not, pretty much every series. Yeah, and, that, and, yeah. and there's there's a wonderful song near the end sung by soldiers, mm. uh, which you know about sort of writing back home. Well, I, I, I didn't that's... care for that. I found that one distracting in its oh, premise, okay. but I, I, I like that one in a, a vacuum. It's kind of sweet, yeah. but in the way that it's implemented, I think it's distracting. Um, but yeah, there, there's you know when the when the characters are all separated, and we kind of have to figure. It's like they're they themselves are trying to figure out what the story is going to be. Yeah, uh, it, it does sort of yeah drag a little bit. 
Um, I admire Joe Wright for not including his trademark oneers. Yeah, uh, there's uh, in in a lot of his films, he's included these uh, fantastic one take shots that you know go through a big elaborate sequence. And, and sometimes they're really organic. Mm. Usually they're not. Sometimes well, he's just the, showing off. In Pride and Prejudice, yeah. uh, the one he did with uh, uh, Kieran Knightley. That's as, a great one. Uh, that's a that's a great one because it's yeah. take place in a bar, in a, yeah, a big a big party, ball, yeah, and a big party, and we're it's basically going from person to person. It's basically the shot from Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, except the studio demanded that Orson Welles cut the, in the middle of this incredibly long one shot. Mm. <laughs> so here they just uncut it. It's, yeah, it's a big. Uh, so I think Joe Wright did that, that very that well. Uh, I think I think he tried to outdo himself after that. So there's another yeah. shot like that in his film Atonement. Which, and Atonement is just showing off. Yeah, it doesn't really add anything. Like it's, it's impressive. Yeah, but it's just, show, but so it's just showing off in that yeah. one. Um, so yeah, there, it's not not a perfect film, and I I, no. I I feel like yeah, it does sort of drag and become a little bit sort of turgid. Yeah. So it's kind of like. Even though it's a, a fun, sad ending, yeah. um, it, it just sort of flops down. But the, the cast end. is so damn good, mm-hmm. and Peter Dinklage is... I mean, it's, it's kind of role-made for him. It's clearly tailored to a lot of his strengths. And he's, I mean, re- and he's reprising it from the and stage. And he's reprising it from so. the stage. And if you've, if you've seen him on Game of Thrones, you understand that he's really good at playing characters who are witty, erudite, and full of pride, even though that's sometimes their downfall. And that's Cyrano yeah. to a T. So it's not necessarily out of his wheelhouse, but he's doing it perfectly. And a lot of credit needs to be given there. And I think every one of the movies is really, really good. I, I don't love it, but I think this is a very, very good version of Cyrano, and I do hope people check it out. Okay. And then there's one more film on our list, and I was not able to see this. You were. Mm. Tell us about. Tell us about oh. how weird this this because this is this is so much irony <laughs> going on right now well, with you, this film. You were not able to see this, just like most people, as it turns out. Um, yeah. Uh, this is a film called Memoria. It's the latest film from Api Chapang, where Seth Akul, uh, sort of one of Thailand's star filmmakers. You might and, have heard uh, of Uncle Boonmi, who can uh, recall his past uh, lives. Uh, film uh, Cemetery of Splendor did very well, too. Syndromes in a Century. Uh, a, a lot of really well-regarded uh, films. Uh, a lot of very quiet movies. Yes. Um, Api Chapang, where Seth Akul likes silence and mm. uses it as a way to explore headspace. Uh, a way to meditate. In fact, his films tend to be pretty spiritual uh, from the Buddhist sense, especially Uncle Boon Me. That's very much about uh, Buddhist transmigration. Uh, but yes, there are a lot of films that are about uh, quiet and the sound we use to fill our head and the sound and what fills our head when there is silence. Mm. Uh, that's incredibly significant to Memoria. Yeah. Now, uh, to comment on its release structure, uh, Neon, the studio that's putting this out, and uh, Apichabang Vurisethakul have said that they're going to be, it's going to be constantly playing uh, at like one museum at a time. Yeah. uh, Just moving around. Just moving around throughout the United States, like uh, throughout the year. So if it's not in your town, you know, either the week or a few days when you're able to see it, you're going to miss it. It's going to move yeah. on. And, and they're not planning they're not to release gonna, it on streaming or home video. It's not going to be on streaming. It's not going to be a home video. Um, uh, us being part of the press, we had a little bit of an inside track. So yeah. uh, it's a little unfair. <laughs> yeah, like we're like the press is like the only group that's going to get to see this like outside of that because environment. They, they wanted to get which, a lot of awards consideration. Which, honestly, but, that's I find that a little hypocritical. Like stick yeah, to your well, guns, okay? Like. Uh, there's, Clear, there's, if you, there's if something you think kind of uh, if you think it's okay for some people to see it at home, that means it's not a big deal if anyone sees it at home. Because you're saying you think it works at home. Because I I watched it at home. Yeah. I, I watched it on yeah. on, a, on a DVD, and uh, it 
it's kind of a pity because, you know, I, I hear a lot of talk about people wanting to see, uh, especially when it comes to, like, big action bonanzas, yeah. to see it on in the biggest screen possible. Mm-hmm. Memorial needs to be seen in the quietest room, quietest room possible, because yeah. this is all about sound and silence. Yeah, there's more to presentation than mm. just big, giant explosions yeah. and stuff. And I also feel like, I just want to, before you move on, I just want to articulate, uh, you know, everyone talks about, oh, we want to see the big blockbuster big screen possible. You know what also looks better in the biggest screen possible? Small films. Yeah. Like, you're going to be so much more wrapped up in their sense of quiet and space Mm -hmm. uh, than you would be at home. I'm not saying that you shouldn't watch those films at home. I'm just saying that sometimes we get so worked up about the excitement of seeing Spider-Man on the big screen, we forget that something smaller, like, theoretically, the tragedy of Macbeth, Mm. would also look even better on a big screen. Uh, Well, and of course, a a, a quiet drama, you're going to need your attention sort of directed in that way. Yeah, you're not going to get distracted by little things around your house. I think one of those big action bonanzas, those played way better on a smaller screen, especially Mm. because... the way they're sort of digitally constructed and mm-hmm. color timed and re-edited and you know, all all these digital trickery, it's all done on a computer screen. It yeah. kind of looks better that way, I think. It's designed um, to look good that it's, way. Uh. Yeah. But uh, Memoria is uh, it's it's a film all about sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tilda Swinton plays a woman who's living in Colombia, and early one morning, she hears a, a deep resonant booming noise. And it's real. It shakes the cars in her neighborhood. Okay. Just a big thunk that shakes the neighborhood. And she seems to be the only one who heard it. Uh, she sort of, and in that apichapangwaris ethical sort of way, uh, sort of wanders a bit. Uh, she ends up visiting a, a sound engineer to try to describe what it is. And she ends up saying hmm. it's like, it's like a gigantic concrete ball, like hitting ground, like hitting the ground underwater. Though, like that's this weird okay. kind of booming. She doesn't. I'm know picturing what this David Strathairn from Sneakers trying to help reverse engineer <laughs> as, as a Whistler. Yeah, um, sound like a cocktail party. <laughs> there's a cocktail party at the reservoir. Um, uh, but she she's visiting some family and she hears this noise. And as she more and more investigates what this noise is, uh, she's eventually. Uh, taken out to sort of out into the jungle of Colombia. Like something about this mystery kind of drives her out uh, while she's investigating. And uh, she ends up finding uh, this man who has sort of resigned to living a simple life. And we learn things about his past and about sort of the, history of violence in that country that are kind of leaking into both of their consciousnesses in, in, in a kind of a supernatural way and how that boom is very, very deeply related to that. And the climax of the movie is an incredibly long single take conversation between the two of them where there's a lot of long pauses mm-hmm. and they're just sort of regarding each other. And then they go inside and they hold hands and the rest of the story is told through soundscape. We The, the images don't change, mm. but the sounds do. And we actually learn a lot about what's going on. And there actually is a weird bit of science fiction explanation as well as to why this might be happening in a, a truly astonishing and surprising shot of the movie. Where we uh, learn that this sort of history of pain never leaves a country's history. 
Yeah. It's always going to be echoing there in our memory and death is always going to be lurking in the minds of those that remember. And I think it's sort of, I think it was sort of a wise uh, storytelling idea to have uh, sort of a, a well-known uh, Scottish, this Scottish character coming to Columbia, sort of an outsider uh, is still kind of going there and still keying into it uh, mm. that it's, it's going to be hanging there in the air for anyone to pick up on. Uh, and in Apichapang Wirasathakul's way, uh, he's willing to let you sit with it for long periods, where he's willing to let you sit with the sound and sit with conversation, or just sit <laughs> and and maybe wander around a little bit and contemplate. Uh, I already used the word meditation or meditative, and that's a word that's typically used to describe uh, this filmmaker's films. Uh, but it is apt. I, I understand it's, you know, it's not incredibly creative, but it's an apt description. And, uh, when you stop to think about that, the emotional impact is going to be that much deeper hmm. and it's going to kind of delve into your memory a little bit more deeply Yeah, and make you realize that if we do slow down and we deepen our memories, we become less distracted and we become more sensitive yeah. to the things that are happening around us. Uh, and hence the, the title, Memoria, isn't it? It's, which is also a memorial. It's about the things that have passed and the way death is part of it. Um, mm. the, a lot of profound, profound things sort of floating around in Memoria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and you feel like it, it presents mm-hmm. them. It, it's one thing to present profound things. You feel like it handles them very well. No, it handles it very, very well. Um, it, it's, it handles it through its storytelling rather than just sort of dealing with it in dialogue. Yeah. Don't Look Up is all dialogue. Yeah. It's just telling. It's, it's not, yeah. you know, it's, it's bitter and sardonic and is just telling you how it feels mm-hmm. very openly. Yeah. Uh, Memoria is telling you the sounds and the memories and the feelings more directly yeah. it's not in dialogue it's in the sound uh, it's rare that I see a film that does that hmm. that actually stops to use sound in a clever way yeah one could say that uh, last year's film um, oh uh, the about Which the deaf, the deaf drummer uh, oh uh, the sound of metal the sound of metal yeah that handles uh, sound very cleverly, but that is about a man who is losing his hear, who has lost his hearing. Yeah, there's a distinct so, reason for that. Yeah, there's yeah. The, that's sort of like a plot reason. Uh, yeah, it, it's rare that I see a film that even bothers to do something creative and interesting with sound, other yeah. than a new way to we, mix an explosion. We, we take sound kind of for granted mm. a lot of the time. Um, there, I remember when I was in film school, they like taught us like people are way more forgiving of not great cinematography than they are of not great sound. Yeah. If yeah. people know what things sound like, you can't like Marshall McLuhan talked about this. Mm. You can close your eyes. You can't close your ears. Mm. Like assuming you, you can hear you, you, if, even if you, you put your fingers yeah, in your ears, yeah, you're not, your hearing yeah. will never be completely. You're, you're constantly aware of what things sound like. And if they sound wrong, you can immediately tell. So <laughs> a lot of, pe- <clears throat> yeah. And so a lot of people, when they make movies, uh-huh. they just try to make it as clean as they possibly can. But a lot of the more exciting movies ever made are movies that really played with that. Look at something like Star Wars Indiana Jones, where mm-hmm. they can sound effects, many of which were, you know, handled realistically in many other things, and they're amplifying them yeah. to sound, make them sound almost expressionistic. Like a punch. When Indiana Jones punches you, that's not a punch. That, that's, that's a, a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a Hollywood meat slammer right there. Yeah, like, that is... Like the sound is being used <laughs> to tell the story because yeah. this is not just any punch. This is a great hero punching somebody. Mm-hmm. 
there's something like but, that. Uh, but like that, even, even now in, we take that for granted. Well, and even in cases such as that, when we hear yeah. a punch or an explosion, that's meant to sort of like uh, sort of jazz you up, yeah. excite you. Uh, this one is slowing you down. It's yeah. trying to get you to essentially die mm-hmm. and be reborn all yeah. through sound. And I think it does do that effectively. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen enough Oppie Chop on Wears Ethical Films. This is only my third. Mm-hmm. I do love what he does, though. Yeah. I, I do love what he does in terms of uh, using a lot of sort of spiritualism and... Uh, almost a lot of religious iconography yeah. uh, in a way to explore uh, sort of a, a deeper part of the human headspace mm. or the deep part of the human soul, if you will. And uh, this one is, is my favorite of the three I've seen. Oh, wow. Um, but they're all, they're all good. I would, yeah. I would still recommend uh, some of the others. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, uh, we review movies on a scale of C- to C+. We do this because sometimes we talk about the pros and cons of a movie. We talk about movie in great detail, and at the end of the day, some people ask, well, did, did you like it? Mm-hmm. So in case anyone's not clear, here's what we do. Uh, if we, most movies are a C, there's some good, some bad, you know, mixed bag. But for some audiences and others, that's average. We give mm-hmm. that a C. If it's above average, we give it a C+. That's any movie we genuinely recommend. It could just be a movie we like a lot. It could be a movie that is the greatest movie ever made. They all get a C plus. That's above average. And then below average, that's a C minus. Uh, that's a movie we just generally don't recommend for one reason or another. We might just think it just doesn't work. We might think it's the worst thing ever made. Uh, on that note, Memoria, Whitney. That is a C plus. Noted. Um, I... It's difficult for me to recommend it because I know you'll have trouble finding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it, you know, pay really close attention to when it's coming through town. And if you miss it, mm. well, golly, you're just going to miss it. Um, well, if they ever, if, if they you, ever backtrack and decide to put on a Criterion or something like yeah. that, don't miss but, it. But, but like, if yeah. you do see it, even on home video, if you, you know, they put yeah. it on a, a Blu-ray or whatever, uh, try try to see it quietly. You know, mm-hmm. watch it with headphones. Get get all uh, get rid of all the ambient sound in the room because this film will it'll just fill your entire head and I I really really appreciate that no, <laughs> really uh, dug it. All right, what about Cyrano? Joe uh, writes Cyrano. Cyr- uh, Cyrano is a, a very high C. Yeah, I, I think it's not an ace, uh, but it is enjoyable. I do. It's a great production and has some great uh, uh, great production design and some great performances. Yeah. Uh, I I wish it were a little bit more of. Uh, d- to use the kids' terms, there were more bangers in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like the fact that this is a musical is sadly holding it back, which is ironic because that's probably the reason why it was made. And it's the, well, it's, it's also the reason it works as well as it does. Some some of it works, some of it doesn't. I honestly right. feel like you could remove the songs from this, and you'd have one of the best acted versions of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think Peter Dinklage is amazing in it. And I think that I feel a little guilty not giving it a C plus since I kind of figured you would. Uh, but I feel the same way. Too. I think it's a really, really high C. But if you see it, you're going to see it for Dinklage in particular. Yeah. He's captivating. The movie, merely, merely good. Mm. Um, let's see. The Tragedy of Macbeth, big old C+. Plus. Big C+. Plus. I really, yeah. really dug it. Um, this is one of the better Shakespeare adaptations we've had in a while. It's not getting a lot of awards talk. Mm. This is the time. I hate to bring it up. But uh, it, yeah. it, it all well, because it, be. Because it means it's right this time of year. Mm. The words talk helps dictate how much attention something yeah, is going to yeah. get. So I, I want so. my, regardless, I would like people to pay attention to this film. I mm-hmm. think it's a really great production of this play. Yeah. Uh, most of the actors are just spot on, yeah. and it's not like and it's not. We often associate the Coen Brothers with quirky. It's not like they've got like, it's not like Joel Cohen has like some like big weird idea of how to play Macbeth. 
it's a distinct a rendition of it, but this mm. is a straight up Macbeth. Yeah. And it's a really, <laughs> really great adaptation, really striking cinematography. Performances are really, really strong. I think Frances McDormand, like, I don't think she's going to get another Academy Award. I, <laughs> I think four this close together might be a bit. But oh, like, what the heck? Why I, it's a competitive not? year in every category for acting. There's a lot of really great performances this year. My point is this, I wouldn't, if, if they gave it to her, I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> I can't really be too mad about that. She's amazing in this movie. Uh, really, really great film. I hope, I hope a lot of people see it. Uh, don't look up. We split. <laughs> Clearly, oh, we've completely split on this film. Um, I, I give it a C. It's not a C okay. plus. All it's right. not, not, not a right. super, not the super sharp satire. Like I said this before, like it thinks mm-hmm. it is, but, uh, I, I think it is doing something right. I think it is, uh, criticizing something that ought to be criticized. Mm-hmm. I think it's very bitter about mm-hmm. the thing it's criticizing. Mm-hmm. Is it obvious? Yeah, but you know, it's okay to hit, hit the audience in the face with a frying pan. If you're really outraged about it, I think we're going to hit. Someone... And I loved the, uh, the coda. I love the very ending. I, I do like the coda too, but I will say this. I think if you're going to hit someone with a frying pan at a movie, it should be funny. Uh, oh, I think I think good. of uh, throw mama from the train, best frying pan hit in movie history, at least live mm-hmm. action of uh, UHF. Okay, that's also pretty good. But I, I'm still going to give it to Throw Mama from the Train. That's a good close second, though. Uh, regardless, uh, this is a movie where I, I agree with the principle of it. I agree with the ideology of it. I just think that the way it is delivered is so heavy-handed and so kind of tone-deaf mm. that it's just a, a hard watch. I just got really bored with yeah. it really, really quick. There's not a lot of variety to it in terms of a narrative, in terms of comedy, in terms of performance. Very, very few characters of anything even remotely resembling a character here. Um, it feels like a sketch that got played out way yeah, too right. much and ultimately feels a little condescending. And I feel like its nihilism isn't necessarily mm-hmm. isn't necessarily helping its message. So mm-hmm. I don't care for it. I give it a big old C minus. I actually think it's one of the worst films I've seen this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, another film I think we split on was The Matrix Resurrections, which uh, flawed. Uh, uh, definitely a, sort of a mixed bag but in the end I appreciate that some interesting swings were, taking, were taken I, th- I appreciate that this is a movie about why this movie shouldn't exist which is always a fun play when you're doing a gigantic blockbuster sequel um, there's some really uh, uh, really fun like character bits and style here uh, I give it a very very high C I think uh, if you're I think if you're interested in The Matrix it's definitely gonna hit you harder than people who maybe only vaguely remember parts of it um but it's not amazing and that's a bit disappointing to me but i know a lot of people who love it even more than i do right. like whitney for example uh yeah i know c minus I, yeah. I, I i don't like the matrix uh this new matrix film mm. um i didn't even like the sequels back in the day i was gonna skip the third one until a friend insisted i go and it's, <laughs> it's like no no you have to go it's really important i don't want to see it <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I feel like this one is on par with sort of those lackluster sequels. It's another lackluster sequel, only mm. more lackluster in that uh, the action wasn't revolutionary the way some mm. of the other ones were. Uh, not even in, It's not even at the same level. It seems a little bit, uh, a little bit hazy and yeah. less energetic. And um, But that's not so much a complaint as it's not engaging with any kind of new interesting ideas. Yeah. Apart from this really interesting meta opening act, mm-hmm. which it just drops and forgets about I throughout think the, the two-thirds. That's kind of my problem is that they drop it as well. Yeah. I feel like for a bit there, 
because uh, I think what made the first Matrix work more than anything, I mean, yeah, style great, mm. action great, all that kind of stuff. But the reason why I think it really resonated this weird existential philosophy well, via because, sci-fi. Well, because thing. it's actually a pretty good allegory. It's actually a story that I think anyone can sort of relate to or can appreciate the overall theme of it. And I think the mm. sequels got way too literal. Yeah, they d- no longer really worked as a metaphor. They were just here's what's really happening and. You know, you're either in, you're either engaged with that or you're not. Um, and I think with this one, they tried to bring the Matrix into more of the metaphorical territory. And I think whenever it's doing that, it's quite good. And then I think whenever it's getting kind of literal again, it falls prey to that same shtick. So it's again mixed bag, but mostly I like it. It's a high C. Anyway, that is it for critically acclaimed this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week with our picks for the best films of 2021. Is it time for that already? It is, and right. boy, was it a good year! I have been like trying to get my list down from 20 because it's a really mm. good year for cinema. It's a lot, I mean, a lot of interesting movies. A lot of interesting, a lot of variety. A lot. I'm gonna of... try to whittle it down to. to... 10 that's the traditional we can, we can, number we can, we can, we can, we can, we can spike it a little bit we can we'll have a conversation about this later but we, we won't make it like you know you know like we like to talk if we did 20 we'd be here for four hours now we'll we'll figure it out but in any case next week we're going to be doing our list of the best films of 2021 and uh, i'm really looking forward to it because there's a few films i'm gonna be able to talk about that i didn't get to see when they came out they only cut up with later that i haven't had a chance to really talk about on the podcast so here i'll finally be able to talk about at least a couple of movies uh that I caught up with late. Uh, So I'm sure when it'll probably be the same way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody uh, for subscribing. Please subscribe if you haven't already. We have a lot of, uh, a lot of shows here at the critically acclaimed network. Mm. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Very big shout out to all of our patrons without whom none of our shows could exist. Yeah. Uh, So you keep the lights on, you keep these shows going. It means the world to us. And if you sign up on Patreon, you get a lot of additional stuff. You get to vote for future episodes of podcasts. You get podcasts dedicated to Batman, Star Trek. These are weekly shows. Uh, We have uh, more monthly related shows, shows dedicated to the Academy Awards. We have commentary tracks. We do hangouts online. Um, We love creating podcasts for you. It means a lot to us. And Thank you so much for joining us on that journey. Uh, we're also on Twitter. We're at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Debiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode or anything else you want to talk about or anything you want us to uh, 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 talk about. <laughs> it's late. We're almost done here. Uh, you What's can, our email address? Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a snail mail uh, P.O. box if anyone likes to send us an actual letter. Whitney, what is that? Uh, you can send it to the Crit- Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And here's a flash from the uh, 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 past. Uh, Luca, get off the counter, buddy. <laughs> he's being naughty. He's, he's like hovering over us on the counter. Like, no, I, I know the treats in, in are that, up there. In that smug cat sort of way. Like, yeah. I know you're doing a podcast so you can't come over here right uh, now and grab me. I'm just going to sit over here wagging my tail like a little schmooze. <laughs> He's so cute. Uh, anyway, we're going to take care of the cat and give him some treats. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>